Hi everybody, Carla here and welcome back to another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. I'm so glad you tuned in. I have for your listening pleasure today, Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky, Part 2, Chapters 1 through 5. I hope you enjoy the readings and thank you again for joining me here at Carla Reads the Classics. Please stay tuned. Part 2, Chapter 1 He lay there for a long time. Periodically, he would seem to awaken and notice that it was already dark, but it never occurred to him to get up. At last, he noticed that it had grown as light as day. He lay there on his sofa face down, still dazed from his recent stupor. Terrible, desperate, shrill shrieks reached him from the street, sounds he heard every night under his window sometime after two in the morning. That was what woke him up now as well. Ah, drunks are leaving the taverns, he thought. It's after two o'clock. Suddenly he jumped up as if someone had torn him from the sofa. What, already after two? He sat up on the sofa and then remembered everything. All at once he recalled it all in one moment. At first he thought he would lose his mind. A terrible feeling of coldness seized him but that was also a result of the fever that had begun long before while he was still asleep. Now he suddenly felt such a chill that his teeth began chattering violently. He started shaking all over. He opened the door and listened. Everything was absolutely still in the house. He looked himself over in astonishment and then surveyed everything else in the room and he couldn't understand how he could have come in yesterday and failed to secure his own door with the bolt. And now he had thrown himself down on the sofa, not only without undressing, but even without removing his hat. It had fallen off and lay there on the floor next to his pillow. If someone had come in, what would he have thought? That I was drunk. But he rushed to the little window. There was sufficient light, and he began examining himself hastily, all over from head to toe. All of his clothes. Were there perhaps any traces? But it was impossible. Still trembling from his chill, he began taking everything off and examining it again. He turned everything over to the last thread and shred. Not trusting himself, he repeated the inspection several times. But there was nothing to do. There was nothing to see. It seemed that there were no traces. Only where his trousers were frayed and the fringe hung down did there remain some thick spots of dry blood. He grabbed his large pocket knife and cut off the fringe. There seemed to be nothing else. He suddenly recalled that the purse and the items he'd taken from the old woman's chest were still in his pockets. Up to this point, he he hadn't even thought about taking them out and hiding them. He hadn't even thought about them just now as he was inspecting his clothes. Why not? In an instant, he rushed to take the items out and tossed them onto the table. After removing everything, even turning his pockets inside out to make sure nothing was left, he carried the whole pile over to the corner of his room. There, down below, was a spot where the wallpaper had been torn away from the wall. He immediately began stuffing everything into this hole underneath the torn wallpaper. It fits. Everything's out of sight. The purse, too he thought elatedly, standing up and regarding the corner foolishly, looking at the hole where the wallpaper now bulged even more than before. Suddenly, he shuddered all over in in horror. My God, 
he whispered in despair. What's the matter with me? Is it really concealed? Is this how one hides things? True, he hadn't counted on having any items. He thought there would be only cash, and therefore he hadn't prepared a hiding place. But now, am I happy now? He wondered. Is this how one hides things? I'm, I'm really losing my mind. He sat down on his sofa in exhaustion, and right away an unbearable chill took hold of him again. He automatically grabbed his winter coat, the one he'd worn as a student. It was lying next to him on a chair and was warm, but already almost in tatters. He covered himself with it. Sleep and delirium overcame him at once. He sank into semi-consciousness. Not more than five minutes later, he jumped up again and all at once, in a frenzy, flung himself at his clothes. How could I fall back to sleep when nothing's been done? So it is, so it is. I haven't even removed the loop under my arm. I forgot. I forgot all about it. What a piece of evidence. He ripped out the loop and quickly began tearing it into pieces, stuffing them under his pillow with his linen. Shreds of torn canvas won't arouse any suspicion, so it seems, so it seems. He repeated, standing in the middle of the room, and with painfully strained attention, he began glancing around again at the floor and everywhere else to see if he might have forgotten something. The certainty that everything, even his memory, even his basic understanding was deserting him was starting to torment him unbearably. What is it really starting? Is this the punishment beginning? So that's it. That's what it is. In fact, shreds of the fringe he had cut off his trousers were lying there on the floor in the middle of the room so that the first person who came in would notice them. What's happening to me? He cried out once again like a lost soul. Then a strange thought occurred to him. Perhaps all of his clothes were bloodstained. Perhaps there were many spots and he merely didn't see them, didn't notice them because his reason had been weakened, shattered. His mind darkened. Suddenly he recalled that there was also blood on the purse. Bah, so there must also be blood in my pocket because I shoved the damp purse into it. He turned his pocket inside out and in an instant, and so it was, there were spots, traces of blood over the pocket lining. My reason must not have deserted me entirely. I must still have my ability to reason and my memory, if I remembered and figured that out myself he thought elatedly, taking a deep, joyful breath of air. It's simply feverish weakness, momentary delirium, he decided, and tore out the whole lining of his left trouser pocket. At that moment, a ray of sunlight lit up his left boot. On his sock, which stuck out, there seemed to be more spots. He shook his boot off. He shook his boot off with his foot. It's really true. The whole end of my sock is soaked through with blood. He must have stepped carelessly into that puddle then. What can I do with it now? Where could I stash the sock, the fringe, the lining? He gathered everything up in his hands and stood in the middle of the room. Into the stove? But they'll begin looking there first. Burn it? With what? I don't even have any matches. No, it's better to throw it all away somewhere. Yes, better to throw it all away, he repeated, sitting back down on the sofa. And right now, this very minute, without delay. But instead of that, his head slid down onto the pillow again. An unbearable chill rendered him numb once more. He pulled his coat over himself again. 
For several long hours, he kept imagining in fits that right now, without putting it off, he must go somewhere and throw it all away, get rid of it at once, as soon as possible. Several times he wanted to tear himself away from the sofa, tried to stand up, but couldn't. At last, a firm knock on the door roused him. Open up! Are you alive or not? Still dead asleep? cried Natasya, banging on the door with her fist. He sleeps for days at a time, just like a mutt. What a mutt you are! Open up, will you? It's past ten. Maybe he's not home, said a male voice. Bah! It's the caretaker. What does he want? Raskolnikov wondered. He jumped up and sat on the sofa. His heart was pounding so hard that it was aching. Then who fastened the hook? Natasya retorted. See, he started unlocking the door. You see, you think they'll come and steal you away? Open up, you thinker. Wake up. What do they want? What's Why is the caretaker here? It, it's all clear. Resist or open the door. To hell with it. He stretched forward, leaned over, and raised the hook. His room was so small that he could undo the hook without even getting out of bed. Just as he thought, the caretaker and Natasya were standing there. Natasya looked him over somewhat strangely. He cast a challenging and desperate glance at the caretaker, who silently handed him a gray piece of paper folded in two, sealed with a bottle of wax. It's a notice from the office, he said, handing him the paper. From what office? The police. You're being summoned to their office. It's clear what office it is. The police? What for? How should I know? They demand it, so you go. He looked at him carefully, glanced all around, and turned to go. Are you really ill? Natasya asked without taking her eyes off him. The caretaker also turned his head to look for a minute. He's had a fever since yesterday, she added. Raskolnikov made no reply and held the paper in his hand without opening it. You'd better not get up, Natasya continued, feeling sorry for him and seeing that he was lowering his legs from the sofa. If you're sick, then don't go. It'll wait. What's that in your hands? He looked down. In his right hand, he held the torn scraps of, of lining, the sock, and the tatters of his torn-out pocket. He had slept with them in his hand. Later on, thinking about it, he remembered that and half awakening with his fever, clasped it tightly in his hand and dozed off once again. Just look, he's gathered some rags and he's sleeping with them as if they were a treasure, Natasya said, then went off into fits of painfully nervous laughter. In an instant, he shoved everything under his coat and fixed his eyes on her. Even though at that moment he could understand very little, he still felt that if the police were coming to arrest him, they would be treating him like this. But the police? Would you like some tea? Yes or no? I'll bring you some. There's some left. No, I'll go. I'll, I'll go right now, he muttered, getting up. You'll go, will you? But will you make it down the stairs? I'll go. Do as you like. She left, following the caretaker. He rushed toward the light to examine his sock and the fringe. There are some spots, but they're not too conspicuous. Everything so dirty, worn out, and faded. If someone didn't know about it beforehand, he wouldn't notice a thing. Natasya couldn't see anything from a distance, thank God. Then he opened the notice with trepidation and began reading. He read for a long time and finally understood. 
It was an ordinary summons from the local police to appear that very day at half past nine at the district superintendent's office. When has this ever happened before? I have no dealings with the police at all. And why exactly today? He wondered in painful confusion. Oh, Lord, let it end soon. He was about to throw himself onto his knees and pray. But then he started laughing, not at the idea of prayer, but at himself. He began dressing hurriedly. A thought suddenly occurred to him. If I'm done for, then so be it. It doesn't matter. I'll put on my sock. It'll get dirty in the dust, and traces will vanish. But as soon as he put it on, he tore it off in disgust and horror. When he realized that he had no other sock, he put it back on again and started laughing once more. Oh, this is so ordinary. It's all relative, all purely form. That thought occurred to him just in passing, merely at the far edge of his mind while his entire body was trembling. But I did put it on. All the same, I put it on. His laughter, however, was immediately replaced by despair. No, this is more than I can bear, he thought. His legs were shaky. Out of fear, he muttered to himself. His head was spinning and aching from the fever. It's a trick. They want to entrap me with their guile and then all of a sudden throw me off guard. He continued muttering to himself as he headed out onto the stairs. The bad thing is that I'm almost delirious. I might, I might utter some stupid lie. On the stairs, he remembered that he was leaving all those things just as they were in the hole behind the paper. What if they come on purpose to search the place while I'm out? He wondered, hesitating. But such despair and such a cynical view of his demise, if one could call it that, suddenly overcame him and he waved his arm in indifference and carried on. If only it would end soon. Once again, it was unbearably hot outside. If only there had been a drop or two of rain these, these last few days. Again, dust, bricks, and plaster. Again, the stench of shops and taverns. Again, the constant drunks, the finished peddlers, and the run-down cabs. The sun shone so brightly in his eyes that it was painful for him to see, and he felt very dizzy. The usual sensation of a feverish person who suddenly comes outside into the blinding sunshine. Reaching the turn into yesterday's secret, he glanced with tormenting agitation at that house and immediately turned away. If they ask, perhaps I'll even tell them, he thought as he approached the police station. The office was about 300 yards from his house. They had just moved into a new place, a new building on the fourth floor. He had been to the former location once briefly, but a long time ago. Entering the gates, he saw a staircase on the right where a peasant was coming down with a registration book in hand. He must be a caretaker, so the office must be in here. He started up the stairs on his hunch. He didn't want to ask anyone about anything. I'll go in, fall on my knees, and, and tell them everything, he thought as he reached the fourth floor. The staircase was narrow, steep, and covered in dirty dishwater. The kitchens of all the apartments on all the floors opened onto the staircase and remained open almost all day long. As a result, it was terribly stuffy. Caretakers with registration books under their arms filed up and down the stairs, as well as police messengers and various people of both sexes, visitors. The door to the office itself was also wide open. He entered and stood in the vestibule, some peasants were waiting inside. 
The stuffiness there was also extreme. In addition, there was a nauseating smell of fresh paint, not yet dry, that had been mixed with rancid oil and used to repaint the walls. After waiting a little while, he decided to advance into the next room. The rooms were all tiny and had low ceilings. Terrible impatience pulled him farther and farther in. No one took any notice of him. Some clerks were sitting and writing in the second room, dressed only a, a little bit better than he was, and they were all strange-looking. He turned to one of them. "'What do you want here?' He showed the summons he'd received from the office. "'Are you a student?' asked the man who'd glanced at the paper. "'A former student, yes.' The clerk looked him over, but without any curiosity. He was a particularly disheveled fellow with a steadfast look in his eyes. I won't learn anything from this fellow because he doesn't care in the least, thought Raskolnikov. Go over there to the head clerk, he said, and directed him to the last room. He entered that room, the fourth in the row, and it was cramped and crowded with people. They were dressed a little more neatly than those in the other rooms. There were two ladies among the callers. One was in a morning attire poorly dressed, sitting at the table opposite the head clerk and writing down something he was dictating. The other lady, very plump, had a dark red complexion with spots, a distinguished woman, very elegantly attired, with a brooch the size of a saucer on her bosom. She stood off to one side, waiting. Raskolnikov thrust his summons at the head clerk. He looked at it fleetingly and said, wait, and continued to deal with the lady in mourning. Raskolnikov breathed more easily. It can't be that. Little by little, he began to feel calmer. He used all his strength to urge himself to cheer up and gather his thoughts. Some stupid thing, some very insignificant oversight, and I might have given myself away. Hmm, it's a pity there's no air in here, he added. It's so stuffy, my head spinning even more, and my mind, too. He felt a terrible sweeping sense of disorder. He was afraid of losing his self-control. He tried to grab hold of something and focus on it, something completely marginal, but he was unable to do so. The head clerk, however, interested him greatly. He tried to guess something about him from his face to penetrate to his core. He was a very young man, about 22, with a dark complexion and a lively countenance, seemingly older than his years, dressed fashionably like a dandy, his hair parted to the back of his head, well-combed and well-greased, with a large number of different rings on his white fingers, scrubbed clean with a brush, and wearing gold chains on his vest. He even spoke a few words of decent French with a foreigner who was waiting there. "'Louisa Ivanovna, why don't you take a seat?' he said, and passing to the well-dressed lady with the dark red complexion, who was still standing there as if she dared not to sit down, although a chair was nearby." Ishdanka, she said softly and lowered herself onto the chair with a sound of rustling silk. Her light blue dress, trimmed with white lace, spread out around her chair like a balloon and filled almost half the room. There was a strong odor of perfume. The lady was obviously embarrassed that she was occupying so much space and giving off the scent of her perfume, although she smiled in a way that combined both cowardice and impudence, but with evident discomfort. The lady in mourning finished at last and was about to stand up. All of a sudden, an officer entered, raucously strutting and swaggering in an extremely sprightly way, threw his cockaded cap on the table and sat down in an armchair. 
Upon seeing him, the elegant lady immediately jumped up and curtsied to him with great gusto. While the officer didn't pay her the least bit of attention, she dared not remain seated in his presence any longer. He was a lieutenant, the police superintendent's assistant, and had a reddish mustache protruding horizontally in both directions and extremely fine facial features, expressing nothing whatsoever, however, except a certain insolence. He regarded Raskolnikov out of the corner of his eye, in part with indignation. His apparel was too disgraceful, and in spite of all his wretchedness, his behavior didn't fit his dress. Raskolnikov, with a lack of care, stared at him so directly and for so long that the officer felt offended. "'What are you doing here?' he shouted, probably astonished that such a ragged fellow hadn't considered effacing himself when, when confronted with his scorching gaze. "'I was sent for. By the summons,' Raskolnikov managed to explain. "'It concerns the recovery of some money from him, from that student,' the head clerk hastened to reply, tearing himself away from his papers. "'Here you are, sir.' he said, pointing to a place in a notebook and then tossing it at Raskolnikov. Read it. Money? What money? wondered Raskolnikov. But this means that it certainly was not about that. He shuddered with delight. Suddenly he felt terribly, inexpressibly carefree. A burden had been lifted from his shoulders. What time were you told to appear, kind sir? cried the lieutenant, feeling more and more offended for some reason. You were told to come at nine o'clock, and it's now already past eleven. It was delivered only a quarter of an hour ago, Raskolnikov replied loudly, and over his shoulder, also suddenly unexpectedly growing angry, even taking a certain pleasure in this feeling. Isn't it enough that I'm ill with the fever, yet I came all the same? No shouting, if you please. I'm not shouting. I'm speaking very calmly. It's you who is shouting. I'm a student, and I won't allow you to shout at me. The lieutenant was so incensed that at first he was unable to utter a word. Only some spit came flying out of his mouth. He jumped up from his place. Shut your mouth. You're in a government office. No rudeness, sir. You're in a government office, too, Raskolnikov cried. And not only are you shouting, but you're also smoking a cigarette and being impolite to all of us. After he said this, Raskolnikov felt inexpressible pleasure. The head clerk regarded them with a smile. The hot-headed lieutenant was obviously bewildered. That's none of your business, sir, he shouted at last in an unnaturally loud voice. Be so good as to provide the required response. Show him, Alexander Grigorovich. These are the complaints against you. You don't pay your debts. What an upstanding citizen you are. But Raskolnikov was no longer listening. He greedily snatched the document, searching for a solution to the riddle. He read it once, then again, but still didn't understand. What's this? He asked the head clerk. Money is being demanded from you according to this promissory note. You must either pay up with all costs, fines, and so forth, or else provide a written statement indicating that you will be able to pay and, at the same time, Agree that you will not leave the capital before settling the debt, and that you will not sell or conceal your property. The lender is free to sell your property and to pursue all legal steps against you. But I don't owe anyone any money. That's none of our business. 
we received a legitimate claim for this overdue payment on a promissory note for 150 rubles given by you to the collegiate assessor's widow, Zarnitsina, approximately nine months ago, and it was transferred by the widow Zarnitsina as payment to the court counselor, Shebarov, and it is for this reason that we're summoning you to provide a statement. But she's my landlady. What if she is? The head clerk regarded him with a condescending smile of pity, together with a certain exultation, as if looking at a new recruit coming under fire for the first time, as though saying, Well, how do you feel now? How could he possibly care about a promissory note at this time, or about some overdue payment? Was it worth even the slightest concern in its turn, even the, li even the least bit of attention? He stood there, read, listened, replied, and even asked, but... He did it all automatically. The triumph over self-preservation, deliverance from threatening danger. That was what filled his entire being at this moment without apprehension, without analysis, without future problems and solutions, without doubts and questions. It was a moment of complete, spontaneous, pure animal delight. But at this very moment, there occurred something in the office, skin to a thunderbolt. The lieutenant, still entirely shaken by his lack of respect, still irritated and apparently wishing to soothe his offended vanity, began fulminating at the unfortunate elegant lady who had been staring at him with a very foolish smile since she had entered the office. And you, madam, you old so-and-so, he shouted suddenly at the top of his lungs. The lady in mourning had already left. What on earth was going on at your place last night, huh? Once again, you're bringing disgrace and debauchery to the whole street. Once more, fighting and drunkenness. You want to wind up in jail? I've already told you. I've warned you a dozen times, and I won't let you get away with it any more. But you did it again, you old so-and-so. The paper actually dropped from Raskolnikov's hands, and he looked intensely at the elegant lady who was being rebuked so unceremoniously. He soon realized what it was all about, and even found this episode immediately to his liking. He listened with pleasure and even felt very much like laughing and laughing and laughing. All this, all his nerves were on edge. Ilya Petrovich, the head clerk was about to say solicitously, but he paused because he knew from his own experience that it was impossible to restrain the lieutenant, except by force, once he was so incensed. At first, the elegant lady trembled as a result of his thunder and lightning. But it was strange. The more numerous and the harsher his words of abuse, the more civil her demeanor became, the more charming her smile directed at the fearsome lieutenant. She shifted restlessly from foot to foot and kept, cursed and kept curtsying incessantly, biding her time impatiently until she could at least get a word in edgewise. There was no noise and no fighting at mine house here, Capitan, she rattled out all of a sudden, as if scattering peas with a heavy German accent, even though she spoke Russian fluently. And no scandal, none whatever, and they came trunken, and I will tell all here, Capitan, and I'm not guilty. I have respectable house, Herr Capitan, and respectable way of life, Herr Capitan, and I never, never wanted no scandal in mine house. And they came completely drunken, and then they asked for dry bottles more, and then one puts his foot up and begins playing their piano with his foots, and he breaks mine gans, gans piano, and he has no manners, none, and I say that. 
And he takes ein bottle and he pokes everyone from behind mit this bottle. Und then I am soon calling the caretaker und Carl comes und he is hitting Carl in, in his eyes und he is also Henrietta hitting in his eyes und he is hitting me on the cheek fünf times. Und that is not proper in ein respectable house, Herr Kapitän. Und I'm shouting. Und he is opening der window und der canal und begins squealing in der window like the little pig. Und this is disgrace. Foo, foo, foo. Carl puts him from their window by jacket. This is true, Herr Kapitän. He teared his jacket. Und then he shouts that man must pay the fine fund house in rubles. Und I myself, Herr Kapitän, am paying him fünf rubles und sie got. Und this nine respectable guest, Herr Kapitän, makes the big scandal. He says he will make big satire on me und will in all the papers write on me. Is he a writer then? Ja, Herr Kapitän. And he has nine respectable guests, Herr Kapitän, in mine respectable house. Well, 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 enough. I've told you already. I did. I told you. Ilya Petrovich, the head clerk said again, imposingly. The lieutenant shot him a swift look. The head clerk nodded his head slightly. Well, this, this, my esteemed Laziva Ivanovna, is my last word, and I won't tell you again, continued the lieutenant. If one more scandal takes place in your respectable house, then I'll have, have you hauled off to the slammer, as they say in the highest circles. You hear me? So a literary man, a writer, received five rubles in your respectable house for his coattail? There's another one of them, those writers. He cast a contemptuous glance at Raskolnikov. Three days ago, there was another scandal in the tavern. A fellow ate his dinner and didn't want to pay for it. I'll put you, he says, into my satire. There was another one on a steamer last week. Someone abused the family of a state councillor, his wife and daughter, with the foulest language. One fellow was thrown out of a pastry shop a few days ago. That's what they're like, and that's what they're like, these writers, literary men, students, loudmouths. Damn them. Off with you. I'll call in at your place one of these days. Then you watch out. You hear me? Louisa Ivanovna hastened to curtsy in all directions with hurried politeness, and as she did, she made her way backward toward the door. But in the doorway, her rear end collided with a safety officer who had a fresh open face and who sported a splendid thick blonde mustache. It was none other than Nikodim Fomich himself, the district police superintendent. Louisa Ivanovna hastened to curtsy very deeply to him. Hopping up and down with her rapid little steps, she flew out of his office. Once again, an uproar, more, once more thunder and lightning, tornadoes and hurricanes. Nikodim Fomich addressed Ilya Petrovich politely and amicably. Once again, they upset you and you lost your temper. I could hear it downstairs. What of it? Ilya Petrovich said with magnanimous nonchalance. He didn't even say what of it, but somehow what of it, moving to another desk with some documents, strutting picturesquely with each step as he did so, swaying his shoulders in time with the steps. Here you are, sir if you'd care to see. Mr. Ryder, that is, a student, that is, a former student, doesn't pay his debt. His promissory note's overdue. He won't leave his apartment. There are constant complaints against him, and he has the nerve to object to the fact that I lit a cigarette in front of him. He's behaving like a scoundrel here, sir. Just have a look at him. 
he's a most attractive sight. Poverty's no crime, my friend, and that's that. You're known to be like gunpowder. You can't tolerate any insults. You took offense at something he said and were unable to restrain yourself. Nikodim Fomich continued, turning, turning courteously to Raskolnikov, but that was to no avail. He's one of our best men, our very best men, I tell you, but he's like gunpowder, pure gunpowder. He flared up, lost his temper, exploded, and that's that. All's lost, and as a result, all that's left is his heart of gold. In his regiment, he was nicknamed Lieutenant Poruk. And what a regiment it was, cried Ilya Petrovich, extremely pleased to be teased in that manner, but still sulking. Raskolnikov suddenly felt like saying something particularly pleasant to all assembled. Pardon me, Captain, he began very casually, suddenly addressing Nikodim Fomich. Put yourself in my place. I'm even prepared to beg his pardon, if I've been impolite. I'm a poor, sick student, disheartened. He actually used the word disheartened. By poverty. I'm a former student because I can no longer support myself, but I'll be receiving some money soon. I have a mother and a sister in a certain province. They'll send me some money, and then I'll I'll pay up. My, my landlady's a good woman, but she's so angry because I lost my teaching and haven't paid my rent for the last three months that she won't even send me any dinner. I don't understand that promissory note you're talking about. Now she's demanding payment according to this acknowledgement of debt? Judge, for yourself. This doesn't concern us, the head clerk began to observe again. Please allow me. I'm in complete agreement with you, but permit me to explain. Raskolnikov began again, addressing not the head clerk, but Nikodim Fomich, though making a valiant effort also to include Ilya Petrovich, who was pretending to rifle through some papers and refusing contemptuously to pay any attention to him. Permit me to explain on my part that I've been living there for almost three years, from the first time I arrived in the provinces and previously, previously, why not acknowledge in turn that from the very beginning I made a promise to marry the landlady's daughter, a verbal promise of my own free will. She was a young woman. In fact, I even took a liking to her, although I wasn't in love with her. In a word, it was youth. That is, I was to state that the landlady afforded me a great deal of credit, and in part, I led a life of... I was very frivolous. We're not demanding such intimacies from you, my dear sir. And besides, we haven't the time, Ilya Petrovich said, interrupting him rudely and with smugness. But Raskolnikov cut him off excitedly, even though it was very painful for him to continue. But allow me, please allow me to tell you to some extent how it was and in its turn, although I agree with you that it's unnecessary to recount. A year ago, this young woman died from typhus, while, however, I continued to be a tenant there as I had been, and the landlady, as she moved into the apartment where she now resides, said to me, and she said it amicably, that she had every confidence in me and so on, but wouldn't I like to provide her with an acknowledgement of debt for 150 rubles, the amount she'd calculated as the total of what I owed? Allow me to state, sir, she said precisely that once I gave her this document, she'd extend as much credit to me as I required once again, and never, never, for her part, and these were her exact words, never would she use that letter before I myself paid my debt, and now I've lost my teaching and have nothing to eat, she's demanding repayment. 
What can I say now? None of these sentimental details, my dear sir, concern us, Ilya Petrovich said arrogantly. You must respond and acknowledge your obligation, while the fact that you happen to be in love and all those tragic particulars, all of that is none of our business. You're being a bit harsh, muttered Nikodim Fomich, sitting down at the table where he started signing documents. He was feeling somewhat embarrassed. So now write, the head clerk said to Raskolnikov. What? he asked in somewhat of a rude manner. What I dictate. It seemed to Raskolnikov that the head clerk had become ruder and more contemptuous of him after his confession. But strange to say, he suddenly felt that no one else's opinion mattered to him at all. And this change seemed to take place in one single instant. If he'd wanted to consider it for a while, then of course he'd be astounded at how he was able to speak to them the way he was just a minute ago and even impose his own feelings on them. Where had these feelings come from? On the contrary now, if the room had suddenly filled up, not with police officers, but with his closest true friends, even then, it seems, he wouldn't have been able to find even one kind word to say to them, because his heart was suddenly so emptied of all emotion. Gloomy feelings of tormenting, unending loneliness and alienation suddenly and consciously took possession of his soul. It wasn't the despondency of his heartfelt outpourings and Ilya Petrovich's presence, nor was it the same despondency or the lieutenant's triumph over him that affected his heart so suddenly. What did he care about his own baseness now, or all these ambitions, lieutenants, German women, procedures, offices, so on and so forth? Even if he had been sentenced to be burned alive at that very moment, even then he wouldn't have batted an eye. It's doubtful that he would have even listened attentively to his sentence. Something totally unfamiliar was happening to him, something new, unexpected, never before experienced. It wasn't so much that he understood, but that he clearly felt with all the strength of his feeling that not only with, with his previous sentimental expansiveness, but even with whatever resources he had available, he was no longer able to communicate with people in the police office. Even if instead of there being just police officers, they were all his own brothers and sisters, even then he would have had no reason to communicate with them, not for anything in his life. Never before, up to this very moment, had he experienced any feeling so strange and so terrible. What was the most tormenting of all was that it was more of a feeling than a conscious thought or perception, a spontaneous feeling, the most tormenting of all those feelings experienced by him in his life up to this point. The head clerk began dictating the form of an ordinary statement in such a case, that is, I am unable to pay, I promise to do so at some future date, I will not leave town, sell my property or give it away, etc., etc. But you can't even write properly, the pen slipping out of your hand observed the head clerk, staring at Raskolnikov with curiosity. Are you ill? Yes, I feel dizzy. Go on. That's all. Sign it. The head clerk took the paper and turned to the and turned to other matters. Raskolnikov handed the pen back to him, but instead of getting up to leave, placed both elbows on the table and took his head in his hands. It was as if a nail were being driven into his temple. A strange thought occurred to him suddenly. To get up right then, go over to Nikodim Fomich and tell him everything that had happened yesterday, everything to the last detail, then go with him to his own apartment and show him the things in the hole in the corner. 
This impulse was so strong that he'd already stood up to carry it out. Shouldn't I take at least a moment to think about it? Flashed through his mind. No, it's better to do it without thinking and get it off my back. But all of a sudden he stopped like someone rooted to the ground. Nikodim Fomich was talking heatedly to Ilya Petrovich, and some of their words reached his ears. It can't be. They'll release both of them. In the first place, it contradicts everything. Judge for yourself. Why should they call the caretaker if they'd done the deed? To implicate themselves? Or is it a clever trick? No, that would be too clever. Moreover, both caretakers and the woman trader saw the student Pestryakov near the gates just as he was arriving. He was out there with three friends, parted from them near the gate, and asked the caretakers about residence in the building in the presence of these friends. Well, would someone ask about residence if he'd come with such an intention? And Coke, before he went to see the old woman, he'd been sitting downstairs with the silversmith for half an hour, and at precisely quarter to eight went upstairs to see her. Now, just consider. But permit me, look at the contradiction that's emerged. They state that they knocked and that the door was locked. But three minutes later, when they arrived with the caretaker, it seems that the door was unlocked. That's precisely the point. Without fail, the murderer was still inside and had locked the door. Without fail, they'd have discovered him there if Coke hadn't been such a fool and gone to fetch the caretaker. And precisely in this interval, he'd managed to head down the stairs and somehow slip past them. Coke should thank his lucky stars. If they'd stayed there, he said, they'd have jumped, he'd have jumped out and killed me with his axe. He wants to give thanks at a special church service. <laughs> no one saw the murderer? How could they? The building's as crowded as Noah's Ark, the head clerk observed, overhearing the conversation from where he sat. It's clear as day, clear as day, Nikodim Fomich repeated excitedly. No, it's not clear at all, summed up Ilya Petrovich. Raskolnikov took his hat and headed for the door, but he never made it that far. When he came to, he saw that he was sitting on a chair, that some person was supporting him on the right, that another man was standing on his left holding a yellow glass filled with yellowish water, and that Nikodim Fomich was standing in front of him, staring at him intently. Raskolnikov stood up from where he was sitting. What's wrong? Are you ill? Nikodim Fomich asked him rather harshly. When he was signing, he could scarcely hold the pen, observed the head clerk, sitting back down at his place and returning to his papers. Have you been ill for long? cried Ilya Petrovich from where he was sitting, also attending to some documents. He, too, of course, had scrutinized the sick man when he'd fainted, but he'd walked away as soon as Raskolnikov had come, too. Since yesterday, Raskolnikov muttered in reply, Did you go out yesterday? I did. Sick? Yes. At what time? After seven in the evening. Where, if I may ask? Down the street. Well, that's a short well that's short and sweet. To all these questions Raskolnikov replied sharply, abruptly, white as a sheet, without dropping his dark, inflamed eyes when confronted with Ilya Petrovich's gaze. He can hardly stand while you while you think, remarked Nikodim Fomich. Never mind, Ilya Petrovich replied strangely. Nikodim Fomich was about to add something more, but glancing at the head clerk, who was also staring at him intently, he fell silent. 
everyone was suddenly quiet. It was strange. Well, sir, that's fine, sir, concluded Ilya Petrovitch. We won't detain you. Raskolnikov left. He could hear how a lively conversation resumed as soon as he'd gone out. The questioning voice of Nikodim Fomich was heard above the others. He recovered completely once outside. A search, a search, an immediate search, he repeated to himself, hastening home. Those rascals, they suspect me. His former fear overcame him again completely from head to toe. Part 2, Chapter 2 What if there's already been a search? What if I find them there right now? But there was his room. Nothing and no one. No one had been there. Even Natasya hadn't touched it. But Lord, how could he have left all those things in that hole under the wallpaper? He rushed to the corner, thrust his hand in, and began pulling things out and loading them into his pockets. There were eight items in all, two small boxes with earrings or something of that sort. He hadn't looked very carefully. And four small Morocco leather cases. One chain was simply wrapped up in newspaper. There was something else also wrapped in newspaper, probably a medal. He stashed them all in various pockets in his coat and in his right trouser pocket, trying to make it all look less noticeable. He also picked up the purse full of things. Then he left his room, this time even leaving the door wide open. He walked rapidly and decisively, although he felt completely devastated, and still had his wits about him. He was afraid of being followed, afraid that in half an hour, perhaps even a quarter of an hour, an order would be issued to have him followed. Therefore, no matter what happened, he had to hide all the traces before then. He had to act while he still had some strength left and some powers of reasoning. But where should he go? It had all been decided long ago. Throw everything in the canal, get rid of all traces, and that would be the end of it. He had made that decision at night, in his delirium, when, as he recalled, he had tried several times to stand up and leave, quickly, quickly, and get rid of it all. But it proved to be a very difficult thing to get rid of. He had been wandering along the embankment of the Yakinarinsky Canal for about half an hour, perhaps even longer. Several times he looked at the staircases leading down to the water. But he couldn't even conceive of carrying out his intention. Either there were rafts moored at the bottom of the stairs where women were washing their linens, or else boats were tied up and the stairs were teeming with people. In addition, from there along both embankments one could be observed, noticed. It would look very suspicious if a man intentionally went down the stairs, paused, and threw something into the water. What if the cases floated instead of sank? Of course, that's what would happen. Everyone would see them. Even without that, everyone he met would look up, stare at him, as if he was all they had to be concerned about. Why is that the case? Perhaps I'm merely imagining it, he wondered. Finally, it occurred to him that it might be better to go somewhere farther along the Neva. There would be fewer people, and he'd be less noticeable. In any event, it would be more convenient. But the main thing is that it would be farther away from where he was now. He was suddenly surprised to realize that he'd been wandering around in anguish and anxiety for an entire half hour and in dangerous places. Yet he had been unable to come up with this idea until now. Consequently, he had wasted half an hour in a foolish enterprise that had already been decided in his sleep, in his delirium. 
He was becoming extremely absent-minded and forgetful, and he knew that himself. He definitely had to hurry. He started walking along Bosnesensky Prospect towards the Neva, but on the way, another idea suddenly occurred to him. Why the Neva? Why into the water? Why wouldn't it be better to go somewhere far away, maybe even to the islands and somewhere in an isolated place in the woods under a bush, bury it all and mark the spot? Even though he felt that he was in no condition to consider this idea clearly and sensibly at the time, it seemed flawless. But he wasn't destined to reach the islands either. Something else occurred. As he emerged from Voznesinski Project Prospect into the square, he suddenly saw on his left an entrance to a courtyard surrounded by windowless walls. Directly to the right of the gate stretched the long, blank, unwhitewashed wall of the adjacent four-story building. To the left, parallel to the blank wall and also close to the gate, a wooden fence ran about 20 paces into the courtyard, then turned to the left. It was a deserted, enclosed space where various materials lay scattered. Farther on, in the depths of the courtyard, the corner of a low, sooty stone shed peered out from behind the fence, evidently part of a workshop. There was someone here, a carriage maker or a metal worker or someone of the kind. The entire area, right from the gates, was blackened with a great deal of coal dust. This would be a great place to hide the stuff and get away, he thought suddenly. After seeing no one in the courtyard, he strode through the gates and noticed at once, right next to the gate, a trench dug along the fence, the kind often found in buildings with many factory workers, craftsmen, cab drivers, etc. And above the trench, on the fence, were the witty words scribbled in chalk regularly found in such circumstances. Forbidden to stop here. Good. Therefore, he would arouse no suspicion if you went in and paused, stash it all together in one pile and get away. Glancing around once more, he had already thrust his hand into his pocket when he suddenly noticed by the outer wall between the gate and the trench, where the distance was about a yard wide, a large unworked block weighing perhaps as much as 50 pounds leaning directly against the stone wall. Beyond it lay the street, the sidewalk, and the sounds of hurrying passers-by, of whom there were always quite a few, but no one could notice him behind the gate, except if someone turned in from the street, which, by the way, could easily happen, and therefore he had to hurry. He bent over, grabbed the top of the block powerfully with both hands, gathered all his strength, and turned it over. There was a small hollow underneath. He immediately began emptying everything from his pockets. The purse wound up on top of the pile, and there still remained some space in the hollow. Then he grabbed the block again and, with one turn, shoved it back into its former place, perhaps now sitting a little bit higher. But he scraped up some dirt and pressed it around the bottom of the block with his foot. Nothing was noticeable. Then he left the courtyard and headed off to the square. Once again, he was momentarily overcome by a strong feeling of joy, such as he'd experienced before the police station. All traces have been buried. Who, who on earth would ever think of searching under that stone? It may have been there since the house was built and will be there just as long. And if someone did find the stash, he would suspect me. It's all over. There's no evidence. He started laughing. Later, he recalled that he had started laughing with a nervous, shallow, inaudible, long-lasting laugh and kept laughing all the way, all the while he was crossing the square. But when he reached 
Kornobardeski Boulevard, where two days ago he had encountered that young woman, his laughter suddenly vanished. Other thoughts flooded his mind. All of a sudden, he felt as if he would be terribly unpleasant. It would be terribly unpleasant to pass that bench where he had sat and thought after the girl's departure, and that it would be terribly painful to encounter that policeman with the mustache to whom he had given his 20 kopecks at the time. To hell with him! He walked along, looking around absentmindedly and spitefully. All his thoughts were now revolving around one main point. He himself felt that it was really the main point and that now, precisely at this moment, he was all alone, face to face with this main point, and that it was even happening for the very first time after these last two months. To hell with it all, he thought suddenly in a fit of unlimited malice. Well, if it's begun, then it's begun. To hell with this new life. Lord, how stupid it all is. I've told so many lies and done nasty things today. How disgustingly I fawned and flattered that despicable Ilya Petrovich. But that's all nonsense, too. I don't give a damn about any of them or the fact that I fawned and flattered him. That's not the point. That's not it at all. All of a sudden, he stopped. A new, completely unexpected and extremely simple question dazed and astounded him. If this whole affair was carried out consciously and not in some foolish manner, if, if I had really had a definite and definitive goal, then how is it that up to this point I didn't even peek into the purse and don't know how much I've taken? Why did I consciously assume all these torments? Why did I undertake this mean, vile, base act? Just now I wanted to throw it all in the water, the purse, together with all the items that I haven't even looked at. How can this be? Yes, that was true. That was all true. Besides, he'd known all this before, and it was not a new question for him. Last night, he decided to throw it all into the water. It had been decided without any hesitation or objection, just as if that was how it ought to be, as if it couldn't be otherwise. He knew all this and recalled it all. It was all decided yesterday, when he was bending over the old woman's trunk, pulling out those leather cases. That was all true. It's all because I'm very ill he decided gloomily once and for all. I've tortured and tormented myself and I don't even know what I'm doing. Yesterday and the day before and during all this time, I've been tormenting myself. I'll get better and then I won't torment myself. What if I don't get better? Lord, I'm so fed up with all this. He walked without stopping. He, would, he very much wanted to distract himself but didn't know what to do or what to try. A new insurmountable feeling was overtaking overtaking him more and more with every passing minute. It was some constant, almost physical repulsion for everything that he was encountering and all that surrounded him, a stubborn, malicious, hateful feeling. Everyone he met seemed repulsive to him, their faces, their walk, and their gestures. If someone had begun talking to him, he felt he might spit at them or bite them. He stopped suddenly when he emerged on the embankment of the little Neva on Vasilievsky Island near the bridge. Here's where he lives, in this building, he thought. How is it that somehow I wound up at, I wound up here at Ruzumakin's place? It's the same story as before, but it's very odd. Did I come here intentionally or was I simply walking and ended up here? It's all the same. Two days ago, I said, I'd go see him a day after that. Well, so I will, as if I couldn't drop in on him now. He climbed up to Razumakin's room on the fifth floor. 
He was at home in his little room. At that moment, he was busy writing. He unlocked the door himself. They hadn't seen each other in about four months. Razumikin had been sitting there in his dressing gown, which was worn to tatters, with slippers on his bare feet. He was disheveled, unshaven, and unwashed, but his face expressed surprise. What's the matter with you? he cried, examining his friend from head to foot. Then he fell silent and whistled shrilly. Are things really so bad, my friend? You've, you've outdone people like us, he added, looking at Raskolnikov's rags. Sit down. You must be tired. When his friend had collapsed on the Turkish oilcloth sofa, which was in even worse condition than Raskolnikov's own, Razumihin suddenly realized that his guest was ill. You're really sick. You know that? He reached out to take his pulse. Raskolnikov pulled his arm away. There's no need, he said. I've come to... Here's what. I have no lessons. I would like to... But I really don't need any lessons. You know what? You're delirious, Razumahan remarked, observing him closely. No, I'm not delirious, Raskolnikov said, standing up from the sofa. On his way to see Razumahan, he hadn't thought about having to come face to face with him. Now, in one moment, he surmised, based on his experience, that he was not inclined at that moment to come face to face with anyone at all on earth. All his bile rose up in him. He almost choked on anger at himself for having just crossed Razumikin's threshold. Goodbye, he said suddenly and headed for the door. Wait a minute, wait a minute, you madman, wait. There's no need, Raskolnikov repeated, pulling his arm away again. What the hell did you come here for in the first place? Are you crazy or what? Why, this is almost insulting. I won't let you go. Well, listen, I came to see you because... Besides you, I don't know anyone else who could help. To start, because you're kinder than all of them, that is, you're smarter, and you can judge. But now I see that I have no need. You hear no need at all for anyone's favors or concern. I myself, all alone, that's all. Leave me in peace. Wait a moment, you derelict. You're completely mad. As far as I'm concerned, you can do what you like. I don't have any lessons either, but I don't give a damn. There's a bookseller at the flea market by the name of Kerovimov, who's kind of a lesson in himself. I wouldn't trade him for five lessons in any merchant's house. He does a little publishing and puts out booklets on the natural sciences, and they do sell. The titles alone are worth the price. You always say that I'm a fool. Well, my friend, I swear there are bigger fools than me. Now he's turned toward progressive politics. He hasn't a clue about it, but I encourage him, of course. Here are some 40 pages of a German text. In my opinion, it's the dumbest charlatanism. In a word, it examines the question of whether a woman can be considered a human being or not. Well, naturally, it demonstrates solemnly that a woman is indeed a human being. Karovimov is planning to publish it as a contribution to the woman's question. I'm translating it. He'll stretch these 40 pages to 100. We'll come up with the most splendid title, at least half a page long, and then we'll sell it for 50 kopecks. It'll work. I get six rubles for 16 pages, which means about 15 rubles for the whole thing, and I got six rubles in advance. After we finish this, we'll start translating a piece on whales, and then we'll publish the most boring, scandalous sections of the second part of Confessions. Someone told Kerumizov 
that Rousseau is like our Radishev. Of course, I won't contradict him. The hell with him. Well, how would you like to translate the second part of Are Women Human Beings? If you do, then take the text, take some pens and paper, it's all been provided, and here are three rubles. Since I got an advance on the whole thing, for the first and second parts, it would come to three rubles for your share. When you finish that part, you'll get another three rubles. Here's what else. Don't think I'm doing you any favors. On the contrary, you just showed up when I was already wondering how you could help me. In the first place, my spelling is awful. In the second, my German is sometimes simply not up to it. So I make it up and console myself by thinking that the result comes out even better. Who knows? Perhaps it's not any better, but even worse. Will you take it or not? Without saying a word, Raskolnikov took the pages of the German article, picked up the three rubles, and walked out in silence. Razumikin followed him with his eyes in bewilderment. But after having reached the first line, Raskolnikov suddenly turned around, climbed the stairs back up to Razumikin's place, and placed both the German pages and the three rubles down on the table, left again without saying a word. Are you delirious? Or what? An enraged Razumikin roared at last. What sort of comedy are you playing? You've confused me completely. Damn it all. Why did you come here? I don't need any translations, muttered Raskolnikov, starting down the stairs. So what the hell do you need? Razumikin shouted from above. Raskolnikov continued down the stairs. Hey, you, where do you live? There was no reply. Well, then to hell with you. But Raskolnikov was already on the street. On the Nikolevsky Bridge, he was forced back to his senses once again as a result of an extremely unpleasant episode. A carriage driver struck his back soundly with a whip because Raskolnikov had nearly stumbled and fallen under the horse in spite of the fact that the driver had shouted to him three or four times. The blow from the whip infuriated him so much that he jumped aside to the bridge railing. It's unclear why he was walking down the middle where vehicles go, not pedestrians. He gnashed and ground his teeth furiously. All around, of course, laughter resounded. Serves him right. He's some kind of rogue. It's a well-known trick. They pretend to be drunk and fall down intentionally under the carriage wheel. Then you're responsible for them. That's how they make their money, my dear sir. That's how. But just then, as he was standing near the railing, staring foolishly and irately after the disappearing carriage, rubbing his back, he suddenly felt that someone was thrusting money into his hand. He glanced around. It was an elderly woman wearing a headscarf and goatskin shoes, accompanied by a young girl wearing a hat and carrying a green parasol, probably her daughter. Here, my friend, for the love of Christ. He took it, and they walked on past. It was a 20-kopeck piece. Judging by his clothes and appearance, they could easily have mistaken him for a beggar, someone out asking for half-kopeck pieces in the streets. For the gift of a 20-kopeck piece, he was probably obligated to... He was probably obligated to the blow from the whip, which had caused them to take pity on him. He squeezed the coin in his hand, walked on about ten paces, and turned to face the Neva in the, in the direction of the palace. The sky had not the slightest trace of any cloud, and the water looked almost blue, which rarely happens at the Neva. 
the dome of the cathedral, the outline of which could not appear more conspicuously from any other point of view than this spot on the bridge, some twenty paces from the chapel, was gleaming. Through the clear air one could discern every last detail of its decoration. The pain from the whip's lash had eased, and Raskolnikov forgot all about the blow. One anxious and somewhat hazy thought now preoccupied him exclusively. He stood there and gazed into the distance intently for a long time. This place was very familiar to him. When he'd been attending classes at the university, ordinarily most often on his way home, perhaps as many as a hundred times he'd happened to pause precisely at this spot and stare fixedly at the genuinely majestic panorama. Each and every time he would marvel at his own indistinct and inexplicable impression. An unaccountable chill always came over him as a result of this splendid sight. For him, this opulent picture was filled with a deaf and mute spirit. He was surprised each time by this gloomy and enigmatic impression. Not trusting himself, he would defer its solution to the future. All of a sudden, he recalled abruptly his former questions and perplexity, and it seemed that this was all happening now for some good reason. It was strange and mysterious that he had paused at the very same place as before, as if he really imagined that he could think about the same thing now as he had then, that the same subjects and images could interest him as they had before, not so long ago. It even struck him as almost amusing, while at the same time he felt somewhat heartsick. Somewhat down below, somewhere down below, in the depths, visible just beneath his feet, he seemed to see all of his recent past, his previous thoughts, previous problems, previous subjects, previous impressions, this entire panorama, even himself and everything else, everything. He seemed to soar somewhat upward, and then everything disappeared from sight. After making an involuntary movement of his hand, he suddenly felt the twenty kopeck piece grasped tightly in his fist. He opened his hand, stared intently at the coin, wound up his arm, and threw it into the water. Then he turned around and went home. It was as if at that very moment he had cut himself off with a pair of scissors from every one and everything. It was already evening when he arrived home. He had been out walking for about six hours. He didn't recall where he had been or how he'd come back. After getting undressed, trembling all over like a horse driven to exhaustion, he lay down on the sofa, pulled his coat over himself, and immediately lost consciousness. It was deep twilight when he came to, upon hearing a terrible scream. Good Lord, what a scream! He had never before heard such unnatural sounds, such howling, wailing, gnashing, weeping, beating, and cursing. He couldn't even imagine the brutality and the rage. He raised himself up and sat on his bed, rendered immobile and tormented at every moment. But the struggle, the wailing, and the cursing became louder and louder. Then, to his enormous astonishment, he suddenly recognized his landlady's voice. She wailed, squealed, and moaned, hurrying, hastening, emitting such emitting words in such a way that it was impossible to understand what she was pleading for. Of course, that they would stop beating her because she was being thrashed mercilessly on the staircase. The voice of the one beating her had become so terrible from rage and fury that it was now merely rasping hoarsely. 
but this person was also saying something or other, also rapidly, indecipherably hastening and choking. All of a sudden, Raskolnikov began trembling like a leaf. He recognized that voice. It was that of Ilya Petrovich. Ilya Petrovich is here, and he's beating the landlady. He's kicking her, knocking her head against the stairs. It's apparent and it's audible from the sounds, the wails, and the blows. What's happening? Has the world turned upside down or what? One could hear how on every floor, up and down the staircase, a crowd was gathering. Voices could be heard, exclamations as people came out, knocked on doors, slammed them shut, and then clustered. But why? What for? How is it possible? He repeated, thinking in earnest that he had gone mad. Only no, he was hearing it all too distinctly. But if that were the case, of course they'd come for him at any moment, because, most likely, all because of that, what happened yesterday. Good Lord! He wanted to lock his door, but his arm wouldn't move, and it would have been to no avail. An icy fear seized his soul, tormented him, and immobilized him. But now, at last, all this uproar, which had gone on for a good ten minutes, gradually began to subside. The landlady moaned and groaned. Ilya Petrovich was threatening her and cursing. But now, finally, he too seemed to have quieted down. His voice could no longer be heard. Has he really gone? Oh, Lord! Yes, the landlady was also leaving, still moaning and weeping. Now her door slammed shut. Now the crowd was dispersing from the stairway, everyone to their own apartments, exclaiming, arguing, calling to one another, first raising their voices to shout, then lowering them to whisper. There must have been a great many of them. Almost the entire building had come running. But, my God, how is it possible? Why did he come here? What for? Raskolnikov collapsed weakly on the sofa, but he could no longer close his eyes. He lay there for about half an hour in a state of suffering with an unbearable feeling of, unen of unending terror, such as he had never experienced before. Suddenly, bright light illuminated his room. Natasya came in, carrying a candle and a bowl of soup. After scrutinizing him carefully and seeing that he was not asleep, she placed the candle on the table and began laying out the things she'd brought. Bread, salt, the bowl, and a spoon. You probably haven't eaten since yesterday. You were out gallivanting the whole day. Besides, you had a fever. Natasya, why did they beat the landlady? She stared at him intently. Who beat the landlady? Just now, half an hour ago, Ilya Petrovich, the police superintendent's assistant, on the staircase. Why did he give her such a beating? And why did he come here? Natasya frowned and stared at him in silence for a long time. He felt very uncomfortable as the result of her stare, even frightened. Natasya, why don't you say something? He finally asked timidly in a weak voice. It's the blood, she replied at last, softly as if talking to herself. Blood? What blood? He muttered, growing pale and moving toward the wall. Natasya continued staring at him. No one beat the landlady, she said in a stern and definitive voice. He looked at her, hardly breathing. I heard it myself. I wasn't asleep. I was sitting here, he said even more timidly. I listened for a long time. The superintendent's assistant came. Everyone came running out onto the staircase from all the apartments. No one came. It's the blood crying out inside you. 
It's when it has no way of getting out and is trying to clog your liver. You begin seeing things. Will you eat something or not? He made no reply. Natasya stood over him, staring at him, and didn't leave. Let me have something to drink. Natayushka. She went downstairs and returned a few minutes later with some water and a white clay mug, but he would not remember what happened next. He remembered only that he swallowed one mouthful of cold water and spilled some from the mug on his chest. Then came unconsciousness. Part 2, Chapter 3 However, Raskolnikov was not completely unconscious throughout his illness. He had a feverish condition with periods of delirium and semi-consciousness. He remembered a great deal afterward. First, there seemed to be many people surrounding him wanting to pick him up and carry him somewhere. They stood over him, arguing and quarreling. Then he was suddenly all alone in his room. Everyone had left, and they were all afraid of him. From time to time, they merely opened his door slightly to have a look at him, threaten him, confer about something or other among themselves, or laugh and tease him. He recalled that Natasya was often at his side. He distinguished one other person, someone very familiar, but who that was precisely he was unable to discern. He was sad about that and even wept. Sometimes it seemed that he'd been lying there for about a month, Another time that it was still the same day he had fallen ill. But about that, he had completely forgotten about that. On the other hand, he constantly recalled that he had forgotten about something that he should not have forgotten about. He suffered and agonized trying to remember. He moaned, fell into a rage or into horrible, unbearable fear. Then he would try to hoist himself up, wanting to run away, but someone would always restrain him forcibly, and he would sink into weakness and unconsciousness. At last, he recovered consciousness completely. This occurred at 10 o'clock in the morning. At that hour, on, a, on clear days, the sun always passed over his right wall with a long stripe of light and lit up the corner next to the door. Natasya was standing near his bed along with the other person who was completely unfamiliar to him and who was examining him with curiosity. He was a bearded young man wearing a caftan who resembled a member of some guild. The landlady was peering in from the half-open door. Raskolnikov raised himself up. Who's that, Natasya? he asked, pointing to the young man. Look at that. He's come too, she said. He's come too echoed the stranger, realizing that he had indeed come too. The landlady, who was peeking in from the doorway, closed it at once and hid. She was always shy and suffered conversations and explanations with difficulty. She was about 40, quite plump, with black brows and dark eyes. She was kind of a result of her stoutness and slowness, and she was even very pretty. She was more bashful than she needed to be. Who are you? he continued to ask, addressing the stranger. But at that moment, the door opened wide once more, and, and in walked Razumikin, bending his head a bit because he was so tall. It's like a ship's cabin, he cried upon entering. I always bang my head, and just think, it's also called an apartment. And you, my friend, have you come too? I just learned about it from Pashenka. He just came too, said Natasya. Just came too, echoed the stranger again with a slight smile. And just who might you be, sir? Razumikin asked, suddenly turning to him. 
I am, if you please, Razumikin, not Razumkin, as they all call me, but Razumikin, a student, the son of a gentleman, and this fellow is my friend. Well, sir, who are you? I'm an agent in the office of the merchant Shalopeyev, sir, and I'm here on business, sir. Be so good as to have a seat on this chair, said Razumikin, taking a seat on the chair at the other end of the small table. It's a good thing you've come too, my friend, he said, turning to Raskilnikov. You've hardly had anything to eat or drink in the last three days. True, you were given several spoonfuls of tea. I brought Zosimov here to see you twice. Do you remember him? He examined you carefully and said immediately that it was some nonsense. It all went to your head. Some sort of nervous nonsense, spoiled food, he said, or not enough beer and horseradish, and that's why you fell ill. But it was nothing serious. It would pass, and you'd soon be back on your feet. Zosimov's a fine fellow. He did a splendid job. Well, sir, I won't keep you any longer, he said, turning to the agent. Would you care to clarify what you need? Note, Rodya, this is the second time someone came from that office, only the last time it wasn't this man but another one. He and I had a little talk. Who was it who came before? That would have been two days ago, sir, exactly. It was Aleski Senyonovich, and he works in our office. And he is a little smarter than you are, do you think? Yes, sir. He's definitely more respectable, sir. Commendable. Well, sir, continue. Well, Although a fantasy Iyanovich Vashrushkin, about whom I assume you have heard more than once, and according to your mother's request, a money order has come for you through our office, the agent began, addressing Raskolnikov directly. If you're in complete control of your faculty, sir, I have 35 rubles to transfer to you, sir, since Semen Semyonovich has received instructions from Afansi Ivanovich, as he had previously at your mother's request. Might you be knowing him, sir? Yes, I, I remember. Vashrushkin, Raskolnikov said pensively. Listen, he knows the merchant Vashrushkin, cried Razumikin, who says he's not in control of his faculties. I see now that you're also an intelligent man. Well, sir, it's pleasant to hear such clever words. It's the very same Vashrushkin, sir, a fancy Ivanovich, according to your mother's request, who once sent you some money in a similar manner, and he didn't refuse to do it again this time, sir. And several days ago, Semen Semyonovich was informed that he should transfer 35 rubles to you in anticipation of better times, sir. That phrase, in anticipation of better times, is the best thing you've said so far. And the words about your mother weren't bad either. Well, then, what's your opinion? Is he in complete control of his faculties or not? It seems to me, sir... Only there should be a signed receipt, sir. He'll scrawl it. Do you have a book for him to write in? Yes, sir. I do have a book, sir. Hand it over. Well, Rod, yes, sit up. I'll support you. Just scribble Raskolnikov for him. Take the pen, because, my friend, money's now sweeter than syrup. There's no need, said Raskolnikov, pushing the pen away. No need for what? asked Razumikin. I won't sign it. What the hell? How can he do it without a signature? I don't need any money. You don't need any money. You're lying, my friend. I swear. Don't worry, please. He's simply that way. His mind's wandering again. You're a reasonable man. We'll direct him. That is, we'll simply guide his hand and he'll sign. Let's do it. I can come some other time, sir. 
No, no, why trouble yourself again? You're a reasonable man. Well, Rodiet, let's not detain our guest. You see, he's waiting, he said, earnestly preparing, preparing to guide Raskolnikov's hand. Let me alone. I'll do it myself, Raskolnikov said. He took the pen and signed the book. The agent handed over the money and withdrew. Bravo. And now, my friend, would you like something to eat? I would, replied Raskolnikov. Is there any soup left? It's left over from yesterday, replied Natasya, who had been standing there all the time. With potatoes and rice? With potatoes and rice. I know it by heart. Bring me some soup and some tea, too. I will. Raskolnikov regarded everything with profound amazement and with slow-witted, irrational terror. He decided to keep silent and wait. What would happen next? It seems I'm not delirious, he thought. It seems that this is really happening. Two minutes later, Natasya returned with some soup and declared that tea would be ready shortly. There were two soup spoons, two bowls, and complete, and complete settings. A salt cellar, pepper shaker, mustard for the beef, and so on, the likes of which he hadn't seen in quite some time. There was even a clean tablecloth. It wouldn't be bad, Natasyuka, if Petrovska Pavlona were to order two bottles of beer. We'd drink it with pleasure. What a sly one you are, muttered Natasya, and went out to fulfill the request. Raskolnikov continued staring wildly and anxiously. Meanwhile, Mizumikin sat down next to him on the sofa clumsily, like a bear, and he put his left arm around Raskolnikov's head, in spite of the fact that he could have raised his head by himself. With his right hand, Razumikin carried a spoonful of soup to his mouth, first blowing on it several times beforehand to make sure he didn't burn himself. Though the soup was barely lukewarm, Raskolnikov greedily swallowed a spoonful, then another, and a third. But after feeding him a few spoons, Razumikin suddenly stopped and announced that they would have to consult Zosimov about what to do next. Natasya came in carrying two bottles of beer. Would you like some tea? I would, Raskolnikov replied. Bring us some quickly, Natasya, because I think we can have a tea without consulting any medical authorities. And here's the beer. Razumikin sat down on his chair, reached for his bowl of soup, the beef, and began eating with such appetite as if he had eaten and as if he hadn't eaten in the last three days. I've been having dinner here like this for the last three days, my friend you, my friend Rodia he muttered, as best as he could, with his mouth filled with beef. And it's all thanks to your nice landlady, Pashenka, who does me the honor of feeding me. Of course, I don't insist, but neither do I object. Here's Natasya with the tea. She's so quick. Nastenka, would you like some beer? What a naughty boy you are. Some tea? Tea, yes. Pour it. Wait, I'll pour it for you. Sit down at the table. He took charge immediately, poured her tea, and then poured another cup, forsook his own lunch, and sat down on the sofa again. As before, he put his left arm around the patient's head, raised him up, and began to feed him teaspoons of tea, once again constantly and very diligently blowing onto the spoon to cool the tea, as if the primary and most salutary point of the healing process consisted in this act of cooling. Raskolnikov kept silent and didn't resist, even though he felt he had sufficient strength to raise himself up and sit on the sofa without anyone's assistance. He felt that he could also control his own hands, hold a spoon or a cup, and even perhaps walk on his own. 
but with some strange, almost animal cunning, it suddenly occurred to him to hide his strength for the time being, to conceal himself if necessary, to pretend that he didn't understand everything completely. Meanwhile, he would listen and try to determine what was happening. He was unable to master his revulsion, however. After swallowing down a dozen or so spoons of tea, he suddenly freed his head, stubbornly pushed the spoon away, and threw himself back on the pillow again. Under his head now were some genuine pillows, down pillows with clean pillowcases. He noticed that, too, and took it into consideration. Pashenka should also send us up some raspberry jam today so I can make him a special drink, said Razumikin, sitting back down in his place and returning to his own soup and beer. Where will she get raspberry jam for you? asked Natasya, holding a saucer in her open hand and sipping her tea through a lump of sugar. Raspberry jam, my dear, can get in a shop. She can get in a shop. You see, Rodia, a whole story has unfolded here without you. When you made off like a rascal for me and didn't say where you lived, I was so angry that I resolved to find you and punish you. I began that same day. I walked and walked, asked and asked. I, I couldn't recall this apartment because I'd never known about it. Well, as for your previous apartment, I remembered only that it was at Five Corners in Karlamov's house. I searched and searched for that place. It turned out to be not in Karlamov's, but in Book's house. Sometimes sounds get all confused. I was angry. I was so furious that next day. I went to the address bureau to give it a try. And do you know they located you in two minutes? You were registered there. Registered, indeed. Yet they couldn't find Colonel Kobolev for someone who was looking for him. Well, sir, it's too long a story. As soon as I turned up here, I immediately learned about all your affairs. I know it all, my friend, everything. Natasya witnessed it all. I became acquainted with Nikodim Fomich, and they pointed out Ilya Petrovich to me, and the caretaker and Mr. Zamitov, Alexander Grigorovich, the clerk in the local office, and finally even Pashenka. That was the crowning achievement, and even she knows. He sweetened her up muttered Natasya with a cunning smile. You ought to put some sugar in your teacup, Natasya Nikiforovna. You dog, you, Natasya suddenly cried and burst out laughing. Besides, I'm Petrovna, not Nikiforovna, she added suddenly after she had stopped laughing. We'll keep that in mind, young lady. So then, my friend, so as not to go on too long, at first I wanted to unleash an electric current here throughout in order to root out all the prejudices in this place at once. But Pashenka was victorious. I never expected, my friend, that she'd be so charming, eh? What do you think? Raskolnikov kept silent, although he didn't lift his anxious gaze from his friend's face. Even for a moment, he continued staring at him fixedly. Very charming indeed, continued Razumikin, not in the least flustered by his friend's silence, as if assenting to the reply he received, and even quite something in all respects. You beast, cried Natasya again, obviously deriving indescribable delight from this conversation. It's a shame, my friend, that you aren't able to deal with this matter from the very beginning. You should have treated her differently. She is so, so to speak, a most unexpected character. Well, we'll talk about her later. But, for example, tell me how it came about that she dared to withhold your dinner. Or, for example, that promissory note. Were you out of your mind when you signed it? 
or, for example, that marriage proposal when her daughter, Natalia Yegorovna, was still alive. I know everything. However, I see that it's a delicate matter, and I'm an ass, forgive me. But as far as stupidity's concerned, don't you agree, my friend, that Preskovia Pelovna's not as foolish as one might presume at first glance, eh? Yes, mumbled Raskolnikov, looking to one side, but understanding that it was more advantageous to continue this conversation. Isn't it true? cried Razumikin, apparently overjoyed that he'd received an answer. But she's not too clever either, is she? She's an absolutely, utterly unexpected character. I'm getting a bit flustered, my friend, I assure you. She must be around 40 years old. She claims she's only 36 and has a right to say so. However, I swear that I'm judging her more intellectually, according to certain metaphysics. You you see, my friend, we've established a symbolic relationship, something like your algebra. I don't understand a thing. Well, it's all nonsense, but when she realized that you were no longer a student, that you'd lost all your pupils and shed your decent apparel, and with the death of her daughter that there was no longer any reason to keep supporting you as a member of the family. Well, she suddenly got scared. Then, since you took refuge in your little room and didn't keep on as before, she decided to throw you out of the apartment. She's been harboring this intention for some time, but didn't want to forfeit that promissory note. And besides, you yourself also assured her that your mother would pay up. I said that as a mean trick. My mother's almost reduced to begging alms. I lied so I could keep my room and my board. Raskolnikov stated loudly and distinctly. Yes, you did the sensible thing. But the point is that a certain Mr. Shabirov turned up, a court counselor and a very businesslike man. Pashenka couldn't conceive any of this on her own. She's very shy. But this businesslike man was not reserved in the least. The first thing he did was to pose a question. Was there any hope of payment on that promissory note? The answer was yes, because you have the sort of mother who, with her pension of 125 rubles, even if she herself didn't have anything to eat, would still send it to her Rodenka. You also have the sort of sister who would sell herself into slavery for her brother. He was counting on this. Why, are you getting restless? Now, my friend, I found out all this to know about you. It was not for nothing that you confided to Pashenka when you were still on good terms with her, and now I'm speaking out of love. Here's the thing. An honest, sensitive man confides in a friend, while a businesslike man listens but keeps on eating and then devours the other person. So she hands the promissory note over to the Shabarov in payment for something, and he lodges a formal claim and won't be put off. When I found out, I wanted to unleash a current through him, too, to clear my conscience, but at the same time, I had harmonious relations with Pashenka and settled the whole matter at its very source by guaranteeing that you'd pay. I vouch for you, friend. Do you hear? We summoned Shabarov, shoved ten rubles in his mouth, got the note back, and now I have the honor of presenting it to you. They'll take your word for it now. Here, take it. I've even torn it a bit like it's supposed to be. Razumikin placed the acknowledgement of debt on the table. When Raskolnikov looked at it without saying a word and then turned toward the wall, even Razumikin was a little annoyed. I see, my friend, he said a minute later, that I've made a fool of myself once again. I thought I could distract you and entertain you with my chatter, but it seems that I merely aroused your anger. 
Was it you I didn't recognize when I was delirious? Asked Raskolnikov after keeping, after keeping silent for a minute and not turning his head around. Yes, me, and you even became frantic because I brought Zamatov here with me once. Zamatov? The clerk? Why? Raskolnikov turned around quickly and stared directly at Razumikin. What's the matter? What are you so upset about? He wanted to make your acquaintance. He and I had talked a lot about you. Otherwise, from whom could I have found out so much about you? He's a fine man, my friend. Most wonderful. In his own way, of course. We're friends now. We see each other almost every day. I moved into this part of town. Did you know that? I just moved. I've been to Laviza's place with him a few times. You remember Laviza Ivanovna. Did I say anything when I was delirious? I'll say you did. You weren't yourself, sir. What did I say? Good Lord, what a question. What did you say? It's well known what a fellow raves about in his delirium. Well, my friend, now, so as not to lose time, we'll get down to business. He stood up from the chair and grabbed his cap. What did I say? You're harping on the same thing. Are you afraid you revealed some secret? Don't worry, nothing was divulged about the countess. But much was said about a bulldog, earrings, some chains, Krestovsky Island, a courtyard, Nikodim Fomich, and Ilya Petrovich, the assistant to the superintendent. Besides that, you were interested in your sock. Very much so, you kept whining. Give it to me, you said. That's all I want. Zemetov looked in all the corners of your room to find your sock and gave them to you with his own hand scented with cologne and decked out in rings. Only then did you calm down. You clutched that junk in your hands day and night. It was impossible to get them away from you. They must still be lying somewhere under your blanket. And you asked for the fringes of your trousers in such a tearful voice. We tried to determine what sort of fringes you wanted, but it was impossible to figure that out. Well, sir, let's get down to business. Here are your 35 rubles. I'll take 10 of them and present you with an account in about two hours. At the same time, I'll let Zosimov know, although he should have been here a while ago since it's already past 11. And you, Nastenka, look in on him more often in my absence to see if he wants something more to drink or anything else. I'll speak with Pashenka myself and tell her what's needed. Goodbye. He calls her Pashenka. Oh, you sly dog, you, Natasya said as, as he was leaving. Then she opened the door and began listening, but couldn't refrain from running downstairs. She very much wanted to find out what he was talking about with the landlady because she was completely enamored with Razumikin. As soon as the door closed after her, the sick man tossed off his blanket and jumped out of bed like a madman. He, he'd been waiting with ardent, feverish impatience for them to leave so he could get to work in private. But what should he do? What sort of work? It was as if now, intentionally, he had forgotten. Good Lord, tell me only one thing. Do they know about everything or not? What if they know already and, and they're merely pretending, teasing me while I'm lying here, and then all of a sudden they'll come in and say that it's all been known for some time and that they were simply waiting? What should I do now? I forgot. As if on purpose, I remembered a moment ago, but then I suddenly forgot. He stood in the middle of his room and looked around in tormented bewilderment. He went to the door, opened it, listened, but that wasn't it. 
Suddenly, as if recalling, he rushed to the corner where there was a hole in the wallpaper and began to examine it. He thrust his hand into the hole, felt around, but that wasn't it either. He went to the stove, opened it, and began searching in the cinders. Pieces of the trouser fringes and fragments of his torn pockets were lying inside, just as they had been when he'd thrown them in there. This meant that no one had looked inside. Then he remembered his sock, which Razumikin had just mentioned. True, it was still lying on the sofa under his blanket, but it was so worn and dirty that, of course, Zamitov couldn't have noticed anything in particular about it. Bah, Zamitov, the office. Why did they mention, why did they summon me to the office? Where's the summons? Bah, I'm all mixed up. That was then. That was when I was examining my sock, but now, now I've been ill. Why did Zamitov drop in to see me? Why did Razumikin bring him here? He muttered weakly, sitting down on his bed once more. What's all this? Is this my delirium continuing, or is this real? It seems to be really happening. Ah, now I remember. To run away, to run away quickly, immediately, to run away immediately. Yes, but where? Where are my clothes? I have no boots. They've carried them off, hidden them. I understand. Ah, there's my coat. They overlooked it. Here's the money on the table, thank heavens. Here's the promissory note. I'll take the money and go away. I'll rent another apartment, and they'll never find me. Yes, but what about the address bureau? They'll find me. Razumikin will find me. It's better to run away completely, far away, to America, and to hell with them, and take the promissory note. It'll be useful there. But what else should I take? They think I'm sick. They don't even know that I can walk. <laughs> I guess from their eyes, they know everything. All I have to do is go down the stairs. What if they have a policeman standing guard? What's this? Tea? And there's some beer left, half a bottle, and it's cold. He grabbed the bottle in which there was still about a glass left and swallowed it in one large gulp with pleasure, as if he were putting out a fire in his breast. But a minute hadn't passed before the beer had gone to his head, and a slight, even pleasant chill ran up and down his spine. He lay down and pulled the blanket over himself. His thoughts, already painful and incoherent, began to get more and more confused, and soon a light, pleasant sleep came over him. With delight, his head located a place on the pillow, and he wrapped himself up tightly in the soft cotton blanket, which was now covering him instead of his torn overcoat. He sighed softly and fell into a deep, sound, healing sleep. He woke up when he heard that someone had come in. He opened his eyes and saw Razumikin, who had opened the door wide and was standing on the threshold, trying to decide whether to enter or not. Raskolnikov sat up quickly on the sofa and looked at him as if trying desperately to remember something. Ah, you're not asleep. Well, here I am. Natasya, bring the bundle up here. Razumikin yelled down the stairs. You'll have the account right away. What time is it? asked Raskolnikov, glancing around anxiously. You had a good sleep, my friend. It's evening now, almost six o'clock. You slept for over six hours. Good Lord, how could I? What's the problem? It's good for you. What's the hurry? Do you have a rendezvous? We have all the time in the world. I've been waiting for you for about three hours. I looked in twice, but you were asleep. 
I went to call on Zosimov twice, but he wasn't in, and that's that. Never mind, he'll, he'll come. I also attended to my own affairs. I've moved today completely with my uncle. I have an uncle living with me now. Well, to hell with all that. Let's get down to business. Give me that bundle, Nastenka. We just now... Hey, friend, how do you feel? Fine. I'm not sick. Bazumikin, have you been here long? I said I've been waiting three hours. No, before that. What do you mean? When did you start coming here? I told you all this before, don't you remember? Raskolnikov became thoughtful. What had happened before seemed like a dream to him. He couldn't remember it on his own, and he looked questioning, questioningly at Razumikin. Hmm, Razumikin said. You forgot. Just a little while ago, it occurred to me that you still weren't quite right. Now you're feeling better with the sleep. Really, you, you look much better, splendid. Well, let's get down to business. You'll recall it soon. Look here, my dear friend. He began to untie the bundle, which apparently interested him greatly. This, my friend, believe me, is something that lies very close to my heart. We must make a man out of you. Let's begin. We'll start at the top. Do you see this cap? He began, taking from the bundle a rather nice, but at the same time, very ordinary and inexpensive service cap. Will you try it on? Later, afterward, said Raskolnikov, waving it away peevishly. No, Rodia, my dear, don't resist, because it'll be too late. I won't sleep all night, because I brought it merely guessing your size. Perfect, he exclaimed triumphantly after seeing it on Raskolnikov's head. An excellent fit. Headwear, my friend, is the first item in one's apparel, a kind of introduction. My acquaintance, Tostayakov, whenever he enters some public place where others are standing around wearing their hats and caps, feels compelled to doff his hat. Everyone thinks that it's because he's doing it out of servility, but it's simply because he's ashamed of the bird's nest he has on his head. He's easily ashamed. Well, Nastenka, here are two different hats. This Palmerston, he retrieved from the corner Raskolnikov's mangled round top hat, which for some reason he called a Palmerston, and this splendid item. Take a guess, Rodya. How much do you think I paid for it? What about you, Natasyushka? He asked, returning to her, seeing that Raskolnikov remained silent. I think you paid 20 kopecks for it, Natasya replied. 20 kopecks, you silly girl! he cried, offended. I couldn't even buy you for 20 kopecks these days. 80 kopecks, and that's only because it's been worn before. True, it comes with a guarantee. If you wear this one out, they give you a new one next year at no cost, so help me God. Well, sir, now let's go to the United Slacks of America, as we used to say in school. I warn you, I'm proud of these trousers. He laid out in front of Raskolnikov a pair of gray slacks made of a light summer wool with no holes, no stains, perfectly passable, though a bit worn, with a matching vest of the same color as fashion dictates. And that it's been worn makes it even better. It's softer, nicer. You see, Rodya, to make a career for oneself in society, one must always pay attention to the season. If you don't order asparagus in January, then you can hold on to a few rubles in your wallet. It's the same with regard to these purchases. It's now the summer season, and I bought some summer clothes because autumn will require warmer clothes, so you will have to discard these. All the more, so nice, 
since these things will have fallen to pieces by then, if not from their increased splendor, than from internal defects. Well, so what do you think? How much did I pay? Two rubles and 25 kopecks? And remember, it's with the same guarantee. If you wear these out next year, you get others for no charge. That's the way it works in Fedyev's shop. You pay one time only, and that's sufficient for the rest of your life. Otherwise, you'd never return there again. Well, sir, now let's get to the boots. What do you think? You can see that they've been worn, but they'll do you for the next two months or so because the material and the workmanship are foreign. The secretary of the English embassy sold them at the flea market last week. He wore them only six days, but he really needed some cash. The price was one ruble and 50 kopecks. Good, eh? Maybe they won't fit, remarked Natasya. Won't fit? And what's this? He took from his pocket Raskolnikov's old stiff boot covered with dried mud and riddled with holes. I took this monstrosity along in reserve, and they were able to determine the correct size. All of this business went smoothly, but as far as his linen's concerned, I spoke with the landlady. In the first place, here are three shirts, coarse cotton, but with fashionable fronts. And so, in all, 80 kopecks for the cap, two rubles, and 25 kopecks for the rest of the clothes for a total of three rubles and five kopecks, one ruble and 50 kopecks for the boot, because they're very fine boots for a total of four rubles and 55 kopecks, plus five rubles for all the linen. I pay the wholesale price for a grand total of nine rubles and 55 kopecks. I have 45 kopecks change. Here, please take these five kopeck coins. Thus, Rodia, all your clothes have been renewed because, in my opinion, your overcoat is not only still serviceable, but even has a kind of elegance about it. That's what happens when you order your clothes from Charmier's tailor shop. And as for socks and remaining items, I leave that to you. We still have 25 rubles. And don't you worry about paying Pashenka the rent for the apartment. I told her your credit was limitless. And now, my friend, please let me change your linen, because some illness may still be lingering in that shirt of yours. Leave me alone. I don't want to, Raskolnikov said, brushing him aside after listening with disgust to the strained playfulness of his account of the purchase of the clothes. Hey, friend, this is impossible. Why, have I been wearing my boots out? Razumikin insisted. Natasyushka, don't be embarrassed. Help me. That's right. And in spite of Raskolnikov's resistance, he managed to change his linen. Raskolnikov fell back on his pillow and for about two minutes said not one word. Why won't they go away and leave me alone? He thought. What money did you use to buy all this? He asked at last, staring at the wall. Money? How do you like that? Your own money. The agent was here a while ago from Vashrushkin's office. Your mama sent it to you, or did you forget that too? Now I remember, said Raskolnikov after some minutes of sullen reflection. Razumikin frowned and regarded him uneasily. The door opened, and in walked a tall, solidly built man who looked somewhat familiar to Raskolnikov. Zosimov, at last, cried Razumikin joyfully. Part 2, Chapter 4 
Zosimov, a tall, plump man with a puffy, pale, colorless, smooth-shaven face and straight blonde hair, wore glasses and had a large gold ring on one of his fat, swollen fingers. He was about 27 years old. He was dressed in a large, light, fashionable coat and light-colored summer trousers. In general, everything he wore was large, dandyish, and impeccable. His linen was spotless and his watch chain was massive. His manner was slow, as if both sluggish and at the same time intentionally easygoing. His pretentiousness, though carefully concealed, was apparent at every moment. Everyone who knew him found this man difficult to deal with, but acknowledged that he knew his business. I came by to see you twice, my friend. You see, he's come too, Razumikin said. I see, I see. Well, and just how are we feeling, eh? Zosimov asked, addressing Raskolnikov, staring at him directly and seating himself next to him at the foot of the sofa where he had made himself as comfortable as possible. He's still feeling down, Razumikin continued. We just changed his linen and he almost started crying. That makes sense. His linen would have been changed later if he didn't want it. His pulse is strong. You still have a little headache, don't you? I'm fine, completely fine. Raskolnikov replied insistently and irritably, suddenly raising himself on the sofa, his eyes flashing. Then he fell back onto the pillow again and turned his face to the wall. Zosimov observed him carefully. Very well, everything's in order, he said sluggishly. Has he had anything to eat? They told him and then asked what he should be fed. Anything, soup, tea, no mushrooms or cucumbers, of course, and he shouldn't have any beef. And, but why sit here chatting like this? He exchanged glances with Razumikin. No more medicine or anything. I'll look in again tomorrow, perhaps even later today. Well, yes, I'll take him out for a walk tomorrow evening, decided Razumikin, to the Yusupov Garden, and then we'll stop by the Palais de Cristal. I wouldn't move him at all tomorrow but perhaps you can, a little. We'll see then. What a pity. I'm having a housewarming today, very close to here. I wish he could come. He could lie there on the sofa among us. Will you be there? Razumikin suddenly turned to ask Zosimov. Don't forget, you promised. Perhaps later, if I can. What have you arranged? Nothing much. Tea, vodka, herring. We'll serve a savory pie. Just a few friends. Who, exactly? They're all from around here. True, they're all new acquaintances, except for my old uncle, and he's a new acquaintance, too. He just arrived in Petersburg. He just arrived in Petersburg yesterday on some sort of business. We see each other once every five years. Who is he? He's been vegetating his whole life as a district postmaster. He receives a small pension. He's 65 and hardly worth talking about. But do I love him? Porfiry Petrovich will also be there. He's the local examining magistrate, a trained lawyer. You know him. Is he also a relative of yours? Zosimov inquired. A very distant one. Why are you making such a face? Just because you two had words once, does that mean you won't come? I don't give a damn about him. That's even better. There'll be some students, a teacher, a civil servant, a musician, an officer, Zamitov. Razumikin continued. Tell me, please, what do you have in common? Or does he have 
Zosimov nodded at Raskolnikov with this Zemitov. Oh, these squeamish people! Principles! You're stuck on your principles as if loaded on springs. You don't dare turn around on your own. In my opinion, he's a good man. That's the principle, and I don't want to hear anything else. Zemitov's a splendid man. He greases his palms. Well, what if he does? I don't give a damn. What of it anyway? Razumikin cried suddenly, somehow unusually annoyed. Did I praise him for greasing his palms? I merely said that in his own way he was a good man. And I ask you directly, look around at everyone. Are there really that many good men left? I'm sure that no one would give even a baked onion for me, even if you threw in all my entrails, and that's only if you were included in the bargain too. That's too little. I'd give two onions for you. Well, I'd give only one for you. Go on, be witty. Zamatov's still a young lad. I'll still pull him up by the hair because he should be drawn in and not pushed away. Once you push a man away, you can't make him any better, all the more so with a young man. One has to be twice as careful with such a lad. Hey, you progressive blockheads, blockheads, you don't understand a thing. If you don't respect others, you harm yourself. If you want to know, it was perhaps a shared interest that brought us together. I would like to know. It all has to do with that painter, that is, the house painter. We'll drag him out. However, there's no difficulty now. The matter's completely clear. We have to turn up the steam. What painter are you talking about? What, didn't I tell you? No, wait a bit. I only told you the beginning. About the murder of the old woman, the pawnbroker, the civil servant's widow. Well, now there's a painter involved in it. I heard about that murder before you told me, and I'm very interested in it, in part for one reason, and I read about it in the papers. But now, they also killed Lizaveta. Natasya blurted out suddenly, turning to Raskolnikov. She remained in the room, standing near the door, listening. Lizaveta, mumbled Raskolnikov in a barely audible voice. Lizaveta, the traitor, or don't you know? She used to come here downstairs. Once she mended a shirt for you. Raskolnikov turned toward the wall and soiled and the soiled yellow wallpaper with little white flowers. He chose one ungainly white flower with some little brown lines and began staring at it. How many leaves did it have? How many serrations in each leaf? How many brown lines? He felt that his arms and legs had grown numb, as if they were paralyzed, but he didn't try to move. He just stared intently at the flower. So what about the painter? Zesimov interrupted Natasya's chatter with a certain displeasure. She sighed and fell silent. They consider him a suspect in the murder, Razumikin continued heatedly. What sort of evidence do they have? To hell with evidence. That's just it. The evidence they have isn't really evidence. That's what we have to prove. It's exactly what happened at first when they rounded up and accused these two. What are their names? Koch and Pestryakov. Pew! It's all so stupid, even loathsome to a person who has nothing to do with it. But that Pestryakov may come to see me today. By the way, Rodya, you already know about this. This happened before you fell ill, precisely the day you fainted in the office when they were talking about it. Zosimov regarded Raskolnikov with curiosity, but he didn't stir. You know what, Razumikin? I've been watching you. What a busybody you are, remarked Z Zosimov. 
That may be, but all the same, we'll get it, we'll get it out of him, cried Razumikin, banging his fist on the table. What's the worst part of it? It's not that they're lying. One can always forgive that kind of lie because it's all because it always leads to the truth. No, what's so annoying is that they're lying and believe their own lies. I respect Porphyry, but what was it, for example, that led them astray from the very start? The door was locked, but when they arrived with the caretaker, the door was unlocked. Well, that means Koch and Prestryakov murdered them. That's their logic. Don't get so upset. They've simply detained them, but one shouldn't assume. By the way, I've met this fellow Koch. It turns out he'd been buying up unredeemed pledges from the old woman. Eh? What a scoundrel he is. He also buys up promissory notes. He's a businessman. To hell with him. Do you understand what it is that angers me the most? It's their obsolete, vulgar, callous routine. Yet here, in this case, one could adopt a whole new approach. Using only psychological facts, one could show how to follow the right path. But, they say, we have the facts. But facts aren't everything. At least half the case is how well one treats the facts. And do you know how to treat facts? Zosimov asked. It's impossible to keep silent when you feel, you feel by instinct that you could help in this case, if only... Hey, do you know the details? I'm waiting to hear about the painter. Well, of course. Then listen to the story. Exactly three days after the murder, in the morning, they were still fussing over Koch and Prestryakov, even though those two were able to account for their every step. The evidence was unmistakable. All of a sudden, the most unexpected fact was announced. A certain peasant named Dushkin, the keeper of a tavern opposite the same building, appears in the office and brings in a jewelry case with gold earrings and tells a whole long tale. A fellow comes running in two days ago, he says, toward evening, just after eight o'clock. You hear? The day and the hour. A painter who'd come to see me before during the day, his name is Nikolai, and he brings in this her box of gold earrings with little gemstones and asks for two rubles in exchange. When I ask him where he got them, he says he'd found them in the street. I don't ask him any more about it. That's Dushkin speaking, and I give him a note. That is a ruble, because I thought if he didn't get it from me, he'd get it from someplace else. It's all the same. He'll drink it up. So it's better for it to be in my hands. Safe find, fast find, as they say. And if something comes out about it, then I could always turn it in. Well, of course, he's spinning an old wives' tale, lying like a dog, because I know this Dushkin. He's a pawnbroker himself and is hiding stolen property. He didn't, he didn't filch this 30-ruble item from Mikolai just to turn it in. He simply lost his nerve. Well, to hell with it, you hear? Dushkin continues. I know this here peasant, Mikolai Dementev, from his childhood, and he's from our district and province, Arayask, and I'm from Ryazan. And though Mikolai isn't a drunkard, he does drink, and I knew he was working in this here house painting together with Mitri, and they're both from the same place. After he gets the ruble, he changes it for some coins right away, downs two glasses of vodka, takes his change, leaves, but I didn't see Mitri with him at that time. The next day, we hear that Elyona Ivanovna and her sister Lizaveta Ivanovna have been killed with an axe. We knew them, sir, and I began worrying about them earrings because 
we knew that the dead woman lent money for pledges. I went to see them in that house and began asking questions, carefully and quietly. The very first one I asked is, is Mikolai here? Mitri told me that Mikolai had gone off on a spree, had come home drunk at dawn, stayed for about ten minutes, and then left again. Mitri hadn't seen him since and was finishing up work alone. They were working on the second floor of the same staircase as the deceased. After hearing all this, I didn't say nothing to nobody at the time. That's Dushkin speaking. But I found out everything I could about the murder and went back home with the same worries. This morning at eight o'clock, that is, on the third day, you understand, I see that Nikolai's coming to see me, not sober, but really dead drunk, so he could still understand conversation. He sits down on the bench and keeps silent. Besides him, in the tavern at that time, there was only one stranger. Another man was asleep on the bench, whom I knew and my two boys. Did you? I ask. See Mitri? No, he says, I didn't. And he wasn't here? No, he says, not in the last two days. Where did he sleep last night? In the sands, he says, near Kolomna. And where, I say, did you get those earrings? I found him in the street, and he says this with some uncertainty, without looking at me. Have you heard, I ask, that such and such happened at the same time on that very evening on that staircase? No, he says, I didn't. He listens to me, his eyes wide open, and suddenly grows pale as a ghost. As I'm telling him all this, I see him reach for his cap and get ready to bolt. I wanted to keep him there. Wait, Mikolai, I say. Won't you drink up? I went to my lad so he'd keep the door closed, and I came out from behind the counter, but he got away from me, ran out onto the street, down the lane, and that's the last I saw of him. That settled all my doubts. He's the culprit, no doubt about it. I'll say, cried Zosimov. Wait, hear the end of it. Of course, they set off as fast as possible to find Mikolai. They detained Dushkin and searched his place. Mitri's too. They scoured the men in Kolomna as well. Suddenly, two days ago, they bring in Mikolai himself. He'd been detained near the gate of an inn. He'd arrived there, removed his cross, a silver one, and asked for a glass of vodka in exchange. They gave it to him. After waiting a few minutes, the old woman went into the crowd shed and peeked through the crack. In the barn next door, he'd fastened his sash to a beam, made a noose, then stood up on a stump and was trying to put the noose around his neck. The old woman shrieked at the top of her lungs and they came running. So, that's what you are. Take me, he says, to such and such a police station. I'll admit to everything. Well, they took him to the police station, that one here, that is, with all the appropriate honors. Then it was this, that, who, how, how old, 22, so on and so forth. Question, when you were working with Mitri, did you see anyone on the staircase at such and such an hour? Answer, of course, some people may have gone by, but we didn't notice who. Did you hear anything, some noise, or anything else? We didn't hear nothing unusual. Did you know, Mikolai, a certain widow, and her sister on that day, and at that time were murdered and robbed? I don't know nothing, and don't have no idea. The first I heard was from a fancy paleage, the third day in the tavern. Where did you get the earrings? I found them in the street. 
Why didn't you work with Mitri the next day? I was on a spree. Where was that? Here and there. Why did you run away from Dushkin? Because I was very afraid. Afraid of what? They think I'd done it. How could you be afraid when you yourself felt you were not guilty? Well, Zosimov, believe it or not, that question was posed in those exact words. I know it for a fact. They told me so. How do you like that? Well, no, but there are certainly clues. I'm not talking about clues now. I'm talking about the question, how they themselves understand things. To hell with it. Well, they pressured him and pressured him, squeezed him and squeezed him, and finally he confessed. I found him not on the street, he says, but in the apartment where Mitri and I was painting. How did you find them? It's that Mitri and I was painting there the whole day until eight o'clock, and we was fixing to leave, and Mitri takes a brush and daubs some paint on my face, he does, and daubs some paint on my face, and he goes running out, and I run out after him. So I go running after him, yelling my head off, and I was coming down the stairs and turning into the gateway at full speed, and I run right into the caretaker with some other gentleman, I don't re remember exactly how many, and the caretaker begins shouting at me, and the other gentleman also begins shouting because me and Mitka are blocking the way. Then I grab Mitka by the hair and knock him down and start punching him. Mitka too from underneath grabs me by the hair and starts punching me and we're fighting not out of anger but out of love, playing. Then Mitka breaks free and goes running out into the street and I chase after him but don't catch up with him and go back to the apartment alone because I have to clean up. I begin to clear things away and wait for Mitri in case he comes. By the door in the entranceway to the room, in the corner against the wall, I step on a small box. I look down, and there's something lying there, wrapped in paper. I pick it up, and I see some tiny hooks, and I take hold of these hooks, and there's earrings in the little box. Behind the door? Lying behind the door? Behind the door? Raskolnikov cried suddenly, regarding Razumikin with a vague, frightened look, raising himself up slowly, leaning on his arm on the sofa. What of it? What's wrong with you? Why do you ask? Razumikin also rose from his place. It's nothing, Raskolnikov replied, barely audibly, lowering himself onto his pillow again and turning to face the wall. Everyone was silent for a little while. He must have dozed off. He's only half awake, Razumikin said it at last, looking inquisitively at Zosimov, who shook his head slightly to indicate no. Well, go on said Zosimov. Then what? Then what? As soon as he saw the earrings, he forgot all about the apartment and about Mitka, grabbed his cap, ran off to Dushkin, and, as is known, received a ruble from him, lying to him, saying that he found them in the street. And then he went off on a spree. About the murder, he confirmed that he'd said before, I don't know nothing, but don't have no idea. I, I heard only about it two days ago. Why didn't you come in before this? I was afraid. Why did you try to hang yourself? From thinking? Thinking about what? They think I'd done it. That's the whole story. Now, what do you suppose they made of all that? What's to think about? There's a trail, not much of one, but something. Facts. Don't tell me they should release your painter. But now they attribute the murder to him without question. They already have no doubt whatsoever. Not true. You're getting too excited. What about the earrings? 
you have to agree that if on that very day and at that very time the earrings from the old woman's trunk wound up in Nikolai's hands, you have to agree that they had to get there some way or other. In such circumstances, that must mean something. How did they wind up there? How? cried Razumikin. Could it be that you, doctor, who, first of all, are obliged to study human nature, and you, who have the opportunity more than most to observe human nature, could it be that with all this evidence you don't see what sort of creature this Nikolai is? Don't you see that from the very beginning everything he said during the interrogations was the sacred truth? That's precisely how the earrings wound up in his hands, just as he said. He stepped on the box and then picked them up. Sacred truth, but he himself has admitted that he lied at first. Listen to me and listen carefully. The caretaker, Koch, Prostryakov, another gentleman, and the caretaker's wife, and the woman who was sitting with her in the lodge at the time, and the court counselor, Kayukov, who at that very moment got out of the cab and entered through the gateway arm in arm with a woman, everyone that is eight or ten witnesses unanimously testified that Nikolai had pushed Dmitri down on the ground and was lying on top of him, punching him while he grabbed hold of Nikolai's hair and was also punching him. They were stretched across the path, blocking their way. People were swearing at them from all sides. They were on top of one another like little kids. The actual expression used by the witnesses, screeching, fighting, and laughing, each trying to outdo the other with his laughter, making the funniest faces. Then, just like children, they went running out into the street, each trying to catch the other. You hear? Now, take careful note of this. The bodies upstairs were still warm, you hear, still warm when they found them. If they had killed the two women, or if just Nikolai had done it, broken in and robbed the trunk, or merely taken part somehow in the robbery, then let me pose just one question to you. Does their mental disposition, that is, with their screeches, laughter, childish fighting under the gate, correspond to axes, blood, criminal cunning, caution, and robbery? They had just murdered them some five or ten minutes ago because, it turns out, the bodies were still warm. And suddenly, leaving the bodies, the apartment unlocked, and knowing that some men had just gone up there, abandoning their booty, they roll around in the road like little kids, laughing, attracting considerable attention from the ten witnesses who testified to this unanimously? Of course, it's odd. Naturally, it's impossible, but, Zosimov remarked, no, my friend, no, but if the earrings which turned up in Nikolai's hands on that very day and at that time really constitute the most important factual evidence against him, though perfectly explicable according to his own testimony, consequently still disputable evidence, then one must consider the exculpatory evidence, all the more so since there are irresistible facts. What do you think, judging by the nature of our legal system? Will they accept such facts? Are they even capable of accepting them? Based exclusively on a psychological impossibility on their mental disposition, as irresistible facts obliterating all accusatory and material evidence, no matter what they are? No, they won't accept them not for anything, because they found the box and the man wanted to kill himself, which couldn't happen if he hadn't felt that he was guilty. That's the major question. That's why I'm so excited. Understand? Yes, I can see you're excited. Wait, I forgot to ask. 
Has it been proven that the box with the earrings really came from the old woman's trunk? It has been, Razumikin replied, frowning, and added, as if reluctantly, Coke recognized the item positively, identified the person who pawned it, and he verified that the item was really his. That's not good. Now, one more thing. Did anyone see Nikolai at the time that Coke and Prestyakov were heading upstairs? Couldn't that prove something? Zosimov asked. That's just it. No one saw him, replied Razumahin with annoyance. That's what's bad. Even Koch and Prestryakov didn't notice him as they were passing by, although their testimony doesn't mean very much now. We saw, they said, that the apartment was open and that someone must have been working there, but in passing we didn't pay any attention and don't recall precisely whether there were workers inside at the time. Hmm. Therefore, the only exculpatory evidence is that they were punching each other and laughing. Let's suppose this is serious proof, but now... How do you account for all these facts? How do you explain his finding the earrings if he really found them as he maintains? How? What's to explain? It's perfectly clear. At least the path this investigation must follow is clear and indicated, and it's the box that's shown the way. The real murderer dropped those earrings. The murderer was upstairs when Koch and Prestryakov knocked, standing behind the locked door. Koch was a fool and went downstairs. Then the murderer slipped out and ran downstairs too because he had no other way out. On the staircase, he hid from Koch, Prestryakov, and the caretaker in an empty apartment exactly when Dmitri and Nikolai had run out. He stood behind the door while the caretaker and the others passed. He waited until the sound of their footsteps had died down, then proceeded downstairs on his own very quietly at the same time that Dmitri and Nikolai ran out into the street and everyone dispersed, leaving no one left under the gateway. They might have even seen him, but they didn't notice him since lots of people passed by there. He dropped the box from his pocket when he was standing behind the door and didn't notice that he'd done so. He had more important things on his mind. The box clearly demonstrates that he stood right there. That's all there is to it. Clever. No, my friend, it is clever, but it's too clever by half, Zosimov exclaimed. Why do you think so? Why? because it all comes together too neatly, and it all works out, as if in the theater. Hey, Razumikin started to exclaim, but just at that moment, the door opened, and in walked a new person, unknown to everyone in the room. Part 2, Chapter 5 This was a gentleman, no longer young, but standoffish, portly and with a cautious grumpy face who began by pausing in the doorway and glancing around as though offended and with undisguised astonishment as if asking with the look in his eyes where on earth have i come he surveyed raskolnikov's cramped and sh shabby ship's cabin with uncertainty even with the pretense of a certain fright almost as though taking offense with that same astonishment he transferred his glance and stared at raskolnikov himself undressed disheveled, unwashed, lying on his filthy, wretched sofa, also examining him without stirring. Then, with the same deliberation, he began scrutinizing the disheveled, unshaven, uncombed figure of Razumikin, who stared directly into his eyes with a boldly inquisitive look, 
without stirring from his place. A tense silence lasted a minute or so until finally, as could be expected, there occurred a slight change of mood. It must have been that after certain extremely harsh facts caused him to realize that his exaggerated severe bearing here in this ship's cabin would not get him anywhere, the gentleman softened his approach and politely, though not without some severity, turned to Zosimov and, enunciating every syllable of his question, asked, Are you Rodian Romanovich Raskilnikov, a student or former student? Zosimov stirred slowly and might have replied had not Razumikin, whom no one had addressed, forestalled him immediately. There he is on the sofa. What do you want? That familiar, what do you want, brought the standoffish gentleman up short. He almost turned to face Razumikin, but managed to restrain himself in time and turned back to Zosimov. There's Raskolnikov, muttered Zosimov, nodding at the patient. Then he yawned, and in doing so, opened his mouth unusually wide and kept it that way for an unusually long time. Next, he slowly reached into his vest pocket, extracted an enormous bulging gold pocket watch in a case, opened it, glanced at it slowly and lethargically, and put it back in his pocket. Raskolnikov himself lay on his back in silence and stubbornly, though without thinking, studied the gentleman who had just entered. His face, now turned away from that particular flower on the wallpaper, was extremely pale and expressed uncommon suffering as if he had just undergone a painful operation or had suddenly been released from some torture. The gentleman gradually began arousing his attention more and more, then his bewilderment, then uncertainty, and even some fear. When Zosimov, having pointed to him, had said, There's Raskolnikov! He'd suddenly and quickly raised himself as if jumping up and sat on the edge of his bed in an almost challenging voice, but also faltering and faint. He said, yes, I'm Raskolnikov. What do you want? The guest looked at him intently and announced imposingly, Peter Petrovich Lucin. I trust that my name is not completely unfamiliar to you. But Raskolnikov, expecting something completely different, regarded him vacantly and pensively and made no reply, as if he were definitely hearing Peter Pet Petrovitz's name for the first time. What? Can it possibly be that you still haven't received any news? asked Peter Petrovitch, somewhat taken aback. In reply, Raskolnikov sank slowly onto his pillow, placed his hands behind his head, and began staring at the ceiling. Anguish was perceptible on Luzin's face. Zosimov and Razumikin began scrutinizing him with even greater attention, and he finally became visibly embarrassed. I assumed and reckoned, he muttered, that the letter sent more than ten days ago, almost two weeks ago, would have... Listen, why are you still standing next to the doorway? Razumikin asked, suddenly interrupting him. If you have something to say, then take a seat. You and Natasya are crowding each other over there. Natayushka, move aside, let him pass. Go on, there's a chair, over here, squeeze in. He moved the chair away from the table, left a little space between it and his knees, and waited in tense anticipation as the guest squeezed through the opening. The moment was chosen in such a way that it was impossible to refuse, and the guest, hurrying and stumbling, slid through this narrow space. 
After reaching the chair, he sat down and regarded and regarded Razumikin suspiciously. Don't be embarrassed, Razumikin rattled on. Rodia's been ill for the last five days and was delirious for three of them. Just now he's returned to his senses and has even eaten with gusto. This is his doctor, who's just examined him. I'm Rodia's friend, also a former student, and now I'm looking after him. Don't pay any attention to us and don't be shy. Go on and say what it is that you have to say. Thank you, but I might be disturbing the patient by my presence and my conversation. Peter Petrovich asked, turning to Zosimov. No, no, mumbled Zosimov, yawning again. You may even distract him. He's been back with us for a while since this morning, continued Razumikin, whose familiarity had the air of such genuine simplicity that Peter Petrovich thought for a bit and began to take heart in part, perhaps because this ragged and impudent fellow had introduced himself as a student. Your mama, began Lucen. Hmm, Razumikin said loudly. Lucen looked at him inquisitively. Never mind, just, just so, go on. Lucen shrugged his shoulders. Your mama began writing a letter to you before I left. After my arrival here, I intentionally waited a few days and didn't come to see you in order to be completely certain that you'd been apprised of the whole matter. But now, to my surprise, I know, I know, Raskolnikov said suddenly with an expression of the most impatient annoyance. So, it's you, the suitor. Well, what do I know? And that's enough. Peter Petrovich was downright offended but remained silent. He made a concerted effort to understand what all this meant. The silence continued for a minute. Meanwhile, Raskolnikov, who had turned toward him slightly after his response, suddenly took to staring directly at him again with some special curiosity, as if he hadn't had the chance to examine him fully before, as if something new about his appearance had struck him. He even raised himself up intentionally from his pillow to do this. As a matter of fact, Something in Peter Petrovich's general appearance did strike him as peculiar. That is, something that seemed to support the term suitor, conveyed upon him so unceremoniously just now. Petrovich had made hasty efforts to use his few days in the capital to get himself all decked out and fancied up in anticipation of meeting his fiancée, which fact, however, was extremely harmless and acceptable. Even his own awareness, perhaps a bit too self-satisfied, his own awareness of this pleasant change for the better could be forgiven on such, a, such an occasion, for Peter Petrovich was close to being a bridegroom. All of his apparel had just come from a tailor, and it was all very fine, except perhaps that it was all too new and revealed his purpose too evidently. Even his foppish, trendy, round hat bore witness to it. Peter Petrovich treated his hat too respectfully and held it in his hands too cautiously. Even his splendid pair of lilac-colored French gloves bore witness to the same thing, if only because he wasn't wearing them, merely holding them in his hand for show. Bright and youthful colors predominated in his apparel. He was wearing a fine summer jacket of a light brown hue, bright lightweight trousers, the same kind of vest, brand new refined linen, and a light cotton necktie with pink stripes. And best of all, this apparel was even becoming to Peter Petrovich. His face, extremely fresh and even ruddy, seemed younger than his 45 years, even without his new clothes. 
dark mutton chop whiskers shaded his cheeks pleasantly and thickened handsomely next to his closely shaved, shining chin. Even his hair, with only a slight trace of gray, had been combed and curled by a barber, but this fact didn't make him look comical or foolish, as usually happens with curled hair, but it inevitably conveys to the face the look of a German about to get married. If there was anything really unpleasant and repulsive in this rather handsome and respectable appearance, it was caused by other factors. After unceremoniously examining Mr. Lucin, Raskolnikov smiled maliciously, once again lowered himself onto his pillow, and began staring at the ceiling as he had before. But Mr. Luzin gathered his strength and, it seems, resolved for the time being not to notice any of this strange behavior. I very deeply regret that I find you in this situation, he began again, ending the silence with some effort. Had I known you were ill, I'd have come by sooner. But business, you understand. In addition, I have extremely important work pertaining to legal matters in the Senate. I won't even mention those concerns, which you can guess. And I await your family, that is, your mama and sister, at any moment. Raskolnikov stirred and was about to say something. His face expressed a certain agitation. Peter Petrovich paused and waited, but since nothing followed, he continued. At any moment, I found them a place to stay for the time being. Where? Raskolnikov inquired faintly. Very close to here, at Bekaleev's house. That's on Voznesensky's prospect. Razumikin interrupted. There are two floors rented out as hotel rooms by the merchant Yushin. I've been there. Yes, hotel rooms. It's a terribly filthy place. Dirt, stench, full of suspicious types. Things have happened there. The devil knows who actually lives there. I myself was present at some disgraceful affair. However, it is cheap. Of course, I was unable to gather sufficient information about it since I just arrived. Peter Petrovich objected delicately. However, I chose two very, very clean little rooms, and since it's for such a short stay, I've also found a real apartment, that is, our future apartment, he said, turning to Raskilnikov, and renovations are being made to it now. Meanwhile, I myself have squeezed into some rooms not far from here, at Madame Lipovexel's, in the apartment of my young friend, Andrei Semyonich Lebyatnikov. He's the one who told me about Bekaleev's house. Lebyatnikov, Raskolnikov said slowly, as if recalling something. Yes, Andrei Semyonich Lebyatnikov, an officer worker in the ministry. Do you happen to know him? Yes. No, Raskolnikov replied. Forgive me. It seemed you did from your question. I was his guardian at the time. He's a very nice young man and terribly well-informed. I love to meet young people. You find out what's new from them. Peter Petrovich examined all those present with a hopeful look. In what respect? asked Razumikin. In the most serious, so to speak, the most essential way, Peter Petrovich explained, seeming to enjoy the question. You see, I haven't been to Petersburg in the last 10 years. All these new things, reforms, ideas, all of this has managed to reach us in the provinces, but to see it more clearly and to understand it all, one must be in Petersburg. Well, sir, my idea is that you notice more and learn more when observing our younger generation. I confess that I rejoiced. 
And what, precisely? Your question is a broad one. I might be mistaken, but it seems that I find they have a clearer view, a more critical view, so to speak. They're more effective. That's true, muttered Yosimov. Not true. They're, they're not more effective, Razumikin seized upon his words. It's hard to be effective. It doesn't just descend from the heavens. For almost 200 years, we've been weaned away from any action. We may have plenty of ideas, he said, turning to Peter Petrovich, and a desire for the good, though it's childlike. One can even find integrity in spite of all the swindlers who've turned up among us, but there's still no efficacy. Effective people are nowhere to be seen. I don't agree with you. Peter Petrovich objected with visible pleasure. Of course, there are enthusiasms and accuracies, but one must be indulgent. Enthusiasms bear witness to the fervor for the action and to incoherent and to incorrect external circumstances in which the matter is placed. If little has been achieved, it's because there's been so little time. I'm not even referring to the means. In my personal view, if you like, one can even say that something has been achieved. New, useful ideas have been widely circulated. Several new, useful works have been disseminated in place of the previous fantastic and romantic ones. Literature has acquired a more mature outlook, and many harmful prejudices have been rooted out and ridiculed. In a word, We've cut ourselves off once and for all from the past, and in my opinion, that's already an achievement, sir. He's memorized that speech. He's showing off, Raskolnikov muttered suddenly. What, sir? asked Peter Petrovich, who hadn't caught what was said, but he received no reply. That's all fair, Zosimov hastened to insert. Isn't it true, sir? continued Peter Petrovich, glancing pleasantly at Zosimov. You'll agree yourself, he continued, turning to Razumikin. But now, with an element of triumph and superiority, and almost adding the phrase, young man, as he spoke, that there's been notable advancement, or as they say now, progress, in the at least in the name of science and economic truth. How banal! No, it's not banal, sir. If, for example, up to now I was told to love my neighbor, and did so, what came of that? continued Peter Petrovich, perhaps with excessive haste. What came of it was that I tore my cloak in two, gave half to my neighbor, and we both wound up half naked, just like in the Russian proverb. If you chase two hares, you catch neither. Science tells us to love ourselves first of all, because everything on earth is based on personal interest. If you love yourself alone, then you conduct your affairs appropriately, and your cloak will remain in one piece. Economic truth adds that the more private businesses we have in society, and so to speak, the more cloaks remain intact, then the firmer its foundations, and the more will be accomplished for the common good. Consequently, in acquiring solely and exclusively for myself, I'm also acquiring for all, and making sure that my neighbor receives somewhat more than a torn cloak, and not because of private solitary generosity, but as the result of general advancement. The idea is simple, but unfortunately too long in the coming, hidden by a penchant for enthusiasm and fantasy. It seems that a little cleverness is necessary to surmise that Excuse me, I'm not too clever either, Razuma can cut in abruptly. Therefore, let's stop here. 
I began with a purpose, but all of this chatter for self-amusement, all these incessant, endless commonplaces over and over again have become so loathsome to me that over the past three years that so helped me God, I blush when other people utter them in my presence, let alone when I myself say them. You naturally hasten to show off your knowledge. That's very understandable, and I don't condemn you. I only, I'd only like to know who you are because, don't you see, so many opportunists have latched on to these commonplaces of their own interest. They have defiled the entire cause. Well, sir, that's enough. My dear sir, Luzon began, wincing with a sense of his own extraordinary worth. Are you implying so unceremoniously that I, too, oh, for pity's sake, would I do that? Well, sir, that's enough, snapped Razumikin, then turned abruptly to Zosimov to resume their previous conversation. Peter Petrovich proved to be clever enough to accept this explanation immediately. However, he decided to leave in a few minutes. I trust that now our newly formed acquaintance, he said, turning to Raskolnikov, after your recovery and in view of the circumstances you know well, will become even stronger. I especially wish you good health. Raskolnikov didn't even turn his head. Peter Petrovich was about to stand up and take his leave. The murderer was definitely someone who pawned something, Zosimov declared firmly. Absolutely, Zahumikin Razumikin agreed. Porphyry won't reveal what he's thinking, but he's questioning those people who've pawned items. Are they all being interrogated? Raskolnikov asked loudly. Yes, what of it? Nothing. How is he finding them? Koch named a few. Other names were written on wrappings of the items, and other people came forward on their own when they heard about it. Well, the murderer must be a cunning and experienced rogue. What impudence, what resolve. That's precisely what he's missing, Razumikin interrupted. That's what he's, that's, that's what's leading you all astray. I maintain that he was inept and inexperienced, and this was probably his first endeavor. If you assume he was calculating and cunning, a calculating and cunning rogue, then the whole thing turns out improbably. Assume an inexperienced fellow, and it turns out that it was chance alone that saved him from disaster, and what can't chance do? He might not even have foreseen the obstacles he'd encounter. How did this affair proceed? He took items worth 10 or 20 rubles, stuffed them into his pocket, searched around in the old woman's trunk among her clothes, but later in her dresser, in a box in the top drawer, they find 1,500 rubles in cash, plus some notes. He didn't know how to rob. He only knew how to murder. It was his first endeavor, I tell you, his first. He lost his head. It wasn't calculation, but chance that saved him. He seemed to be talking about the recent murder of the old woman, the civil servant's widow. Peter Petrovich intervened, addressing Zasimov and wishing to insert a few more clever words before he left, even though he was already standing with his hat and gloves in hand. Clearly, he was concerned about making an impression, and his vanity had overcome his good sense. Yes, you've heard about it? Of course, it occurred close by. Do you know the details? I can't say that I do, but what interests me about it is yet another circumstance, the whole problem, so to speak. I'm not talking about the fact that in the last five years, the number of crimes among the lower class has increased. I'm not talking about the constant universal robberies and arsons. 
For me, the strangest thing of all is that the number of crimes among the upper class is also increasing in parallel, so to speak. In one town, we learned that a former student has robbed the mail along the main road. Elsewhere, some people of respectable social standing are engaged in forging banknotes. In Moscow, they apprehended an entire gang counterfeiting tickets for the last public lottery. Among the leading participants was one lecturer in world history. The secretary in one of our embassies was murdered for some enigmatic, enigmatic financial dealings. Now, if this old woman pawnbroker was killed by one of her clients, it must have been someone of higher social standing, since peasants don't pawn gold items. How then do we explain this depravity of the civilized part of our society? There have been many economic changes, Zosimov observed. How can that be explained? Razumikin latched on to the question. It can be easily explained by their too deep-rooted lack of effectiveness. What do you mean, sir? How did that lecturer in Moscow reply to your question of why he was counterfeiting lottery tickets? Everyone gets rich in his own way, so I also wanted to do so quickly. I don't recall his exact words, but the idea was that he'd become wealthy for free as quickly as possible without having to work for it. They're used to having everything done for them, living off the charity of others, being spoon-fed. But when the great hour struck, they showed what they're made of. But what about morality? And, so to speak, the rules of... Why are you making such a fuss? Raskolnikov broke in unexpectedly. It worked out according to your theory. How's that? If you follow the theory that you were advocating just now, to its conclusion, it turns out that one can slaughter people. Good Lord, cried Luzin. No, that's not true, echoed Zosimov. Raskolnikov lay there, pale, his upper lip quivering, breathing heavily. There are limits to everything, Lucin continued haughtily. The economic idea is still not an invitation to murder, and if one can merely assume... It is true that you, Raskolnikov, suddenly interrupted again, his voice trembling with rage and the pleasure of giving offense. Is it true that you told your fiancé at the very moment she accepted your proposal that you were extremely pleased that she was poor? because it was more advantageous to take a wife out of poverty so that you could dominate her afterward and, repro and reproach her for the favors you'd bestowed upon her? My dear sir, Luzin re replied maliciously and irritably flushed and flustered. My dear sir, you have distorted my idea. Excuse me, but I must say that the rumors that have reached you, or better to say, those conveyed to you, haven't the least trace of solid foundation, and I... I suspect, too, in a word, launch this arrow, in a word, your mama. Even before this, she seemed, in spite of all her excellent qualities, to have a somewhat ecstatic and romantic cast of, to her views. But I was still a thousand miles away from supposing that she could represent this matter in a form so distorted by her fantasy. And finally, finally, do you know what? cried Raskolnikov, raising himself on his pillow and staring at him with a piercing, flashing glance. Do you know what? What, sir? Luzin paused and waited with an offended and challenging look. Several seconds passed in silence. If you dare once again utter even one word about my mother, I will throw you down the stairs head over heels. What's the matter with you? cried Razumikin. 
So that's how it is, Luzin said, turning pale and biting his lip. Listen to me, sir, he began in measured tones, using all his strength to restrain himself, but gasping for breath nonetheless. From the very start, I surmised your hostility, but remained here on purpose to learn even more. I could forgive a sick man and a relative a great deal, but now, you, never, sir. I'm not ill, cried Raskolnikov. All the more reason, sir. Go to hell. But Luzin was already leaving without having finished his speech, squeezing between the table and the chair again. This time, Razumikin stood up to let him pass, without looking at anyone and without even nodding to Zosimov, who had already indicated to him that he should leave the sick man in peace. Luzin left, cautiously raising his hat to his shoulder as he bent slightly when he passed through the door. Even the curve of his back seemed to express how, on this occasion, he was carrying a terrible insult away with him. How can you? How can you act like this? asked the perplexed Razumikin, shaking his head. Leave me alone. All of you, leave me alone. Raskolnikov cried in a frenzy. Will you leave me alone once and for all, you tormentors? I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid of anyone now. Go away. I want to be alone, alone, alone. Let's go, said Zosimov, nodding to Razumkin. But can we leave him like this? Let's go, repeated Zosimov insistently, and then he walked out. Razumikin thought for a moment and ran to catch up with him. It could be worse if we didn't listen to him, said Zosimov already on the stairs. He shouldn't become aggravated. What's wrong with him? If only he could be given some sort of beneficial push, that would do it. He was fine just a little while ago. You know, he has something on his mind, something immovable, oppressive. I'm absolutely afraid of that. Then there's that fellow, perhaps, this Peter Petrovich. According to their conversation, it's clear that he's marrying his sister and that Rodya received a letter about this before his illness. Yes, the devil brought him here just now. Perhaps he's ruined the whole business. Did you notice that he was indifferent to everything? Made no response to anything except for one point when he lost his self-control. The murder. Yes. Yes, Razumikin agreed. I did notice that. He's interested in it and he gets frightened. That's what scared him the day at the police office when he fainted. You'll tell me more about it this evening and I'll tell you something later. He interests me greatly. I'll come back in half an hour to see how he is. But there won't be any pneumonia. Thank you. Meanwhile, I'll wait at Pashenka's and we'll check, check on through Natasya. Raskolnikov left alone regarded Natasya, who was slow taking her leave, with impatience and anguish. Would you like some tea now? she asked. Later. I want to sleep. Leave me alone. He turned feverishly to face the wall. Natasya left. And there, my friends, you have part two, chapters one through five of Fyodor Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment here at Carla Reads the Classics. 
I hope you enjoyed the readings. And let me also say that uh, please check the episode details for how you can subscribe to the podcast, for how you can make a Cash App donation, and how you can get your merchandise. There are some wonderful things that you might want for yourself for Christmas or perhaps for someone you love. I would also ask that you please share the podcast with others who you think might enjoy the reading. So thanks again for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. Until next time.